you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me today. I am as excited for this episode as I have been about any that's come before it. That's because my guest, Brent McDonald, holds a special place with me. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute. Coach Brent McDonald assumed the role of head baseball coach at Sci Falls High School, where I attended in Houston, the year after I graduated from high school. And I always felt like, man, I just missed him. And I say that for two reasons. One, I just really would have enjoyed playing for him. He's my kind of guy. But two, he's always believed in me. And this runs very deep. So you remember, I wrote an article called Developing Mental Toughness by Digging Deep Within. And I mentioned the impact that he's had on me. At the bottom of the article, I included him in what I called my wall of gratitude. Because he's someone that I'm just so thankful for. You'll find out during this chat he had way more impact than he was probably aware of. And I think it usually works that way. You never know who's really listening and paying attention. You can't know who's going to remember every word you've ever uttered to them. There are a few reasons I think that Coach Mack has been so influential and impactful in my life. One, he's about the right age, if that makes sense. He was old enough to be my coach, someone I looked up to and respected but not so old that he couldn't relate to me. He understood things that an older coach could not. He could talk to me on my level. like He talked to me like a man. So in the episode called Blue Collars Build Empires, I talked about how when I was a teenager, I was intimidated talking to many adults. And I also feared looking like a kiss-ass to my teammates. That's something that was kind of beat into me from a young age. But I never had that fear with Coach Mack. Another reason, when I graduated from high school and had zero scholarship offers, he hit the phones on my behalf, trying to get me a scholarship. Now, we didn't succeed. We were too late, and I had to walk on somewhere. But think about what that does for a young man who nobody believed in. To have someone in your corner who's pulling for you, who believes in you, who believes in you so much, in fact, that he would put his good name on the line. Hey, junior college coach, I've got a kid here that you should take a look at. Do you think that gave me a renewed vigor and helped to build my confidence going into college as a walk-on? Suddenly, I think I've got what it takes to play at the next level. Nobody else believed in me. Not one man. But Coach Mack did. He believed in me. And maybe that's all I needed. The lesson there is, don't ever miss an opportunity to help a young person who's struggling, especially someone that you think is deserving of your help. You can't always know why a kid is struggling. You can't know what he's going through at home, but you can talk to him. You can get to know him a little bit. You can offer your mentorship. And I keep saying him because I'm thinking of my days in high school, but this applies to him or her. You can help a young boy just as easily as you can a young girl. You might be just the man that young person needs to hear from. 
that you believe in him or her, that you are pulling for him. There's something about you that resonates with them. And when that kid exceeds expectations, as I did when I signed to play Division I baseball, let them know you're proud of them. Maybe that kid's never been told that, that someone's proud of them, someone that they like and respect, as Coach Mack did to me. He said, hey, Brad, how do you spell Nickel State? I'm going to call and make sure we get your signing announced in the Houston Chronicle. And I said, there's two O's in Goose, boys. <laughs> no, I didn't. I said, there are two L's in Nickel State, Coach. Thank you for doing that for me. So I needed men like Brent McDonald. I didn't know it at the time, but I needed a man like that. I needed someone that I respected and liked pulling for me, someone in my corner. It didn't matter whether or not he succeeded getting me a scholarship because the effort was enough. In fact, it was exactly what I needed. The summer before my freshman year of college, I went up to the school. I was up there just hitting in the cage and I saw Coach Mack up there. And he said to me, unprompted, he said, I talked to Jamie Bubella on the phone today. Jamie's a former big leaguer who, who gets quite a few mentions in this episode. He said, I asked him if he thought you could play at Blinn Junior College, which is where Jamie played before transferring to Baylor University. I said, oh, yeah, what did he say? He said, yes, without hesitation. So here was a big league talent, an outfielder in the class ahead of mine, who said that I was of the caliber to play at one of the premier junior colleges in Texas, if not the country. Those brief conversations we had in the summer of 1998 went a long way for me. He went out of his way to help me, and it helped to build my confidence in the process. And I'll never forget him for that. I don't know how my life works out if I don't go on to earn a scholarship after walking on as a freshman to play college baseball. So I mentioned my guest coached at Cy Falls. After his tenure there, he was offered a job to have a bigger impact on more kids. Surprise, surprise. By working in administration. So he worked as a vice principal. And then he became principal at Summer Creek High School, which is a magnificent school. I've never seen anything like it. But that's where he works now. After the tour he gave me the day we recorded, I wanted to send my daughter there right away. I mean, it's, it's incredible. He calls himself the building principal at Summer Creek. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I assure you he is the man there. He has the fancy office you would expect to accompany the lofty title of principal. Mac is married to Angie, who I didn't tell him this, but I remember when she started as a coach at Cy Falls, we young whippersnappers were like, dang, who is that? <laughs> Uh, boys will be boys, right? But leave it to the stud young baseball coach at the time to move in. They now have two kids, 17 and 15. Their daughter, Brianna, is valedictorian of Summer Creek High. Well, it doesn't become official until spring break, but she's currently number one in her class, and it looks like she's headed to the University of Texas to study biomedical engineering. She received her acceptance to the program, I want to say, a week or so ago. And their son, Dominic, is a varsity tennis player as a sophomore, currently number five in his class of 800. He told his dad, look, I can play baseball and get three to four at bats, or I can play tennis and get a lot more action hitting the ball. So I can tell he's a smart kid. So happily married, 20-something years, saving and investing almost 50% of his income 
raising two successful kids. You think I won't be asking this man for advice for how to be a better father, a better investor, a better man? Of course I will. Coach Mack received the great honor of being inducted into the Sci Falls Hall of Fame, a ceremony I attended. This was probably 10 years ago. And in his acceptance speech, he called all the players who played for him up to the front of the room. And then one by one, he talked about the contribution of each player. Nothing, not one thing said about himself. I don't think the word I was uttered once. Oh, and he's a fantastic storyteller. Where do you hear the one about benching a first round draft pick who is expected to pitch in front of 30 Major League Baseball scouts with millions of dollars on the line? Or when his dad called him chicken shit for not going into teaching instead of, or for going into teaching instead of going into business? Incredible stories. Incredible man. We start with a quick discussion about Matthew McConaughey. He's always kind of reminded me of him a little bit. If I haven't talked him up enough, he's actually a cooler guy than McConaughey. Old Hollywood has a habit of talking in the third person. I don't know why he does it, but it's a little cringe. Um, my guest today doesn't do that. All right, let's get to it without saying without further ado. Please enjoy my chat with Mr. Brent McDonald. Coach McDonald, welcome to the podcast, sir. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having me, Brad. Have you ever been told that you sound like Matthew McConaughey when you speak? I have. I've been told that from uh, a couple times. I don't look like him. I don't have the bank account, but I have been told that we have the same uh, same voices somehow, some way. He just wrote a book called Green Lights, and what he's done is basically taken information from his journals that he's kept for 37 years and made it into a book. And now he's doing the podcast circuit. So I've heard him on Joe Rogan. I've heard him on Tim Ferriss. Have you ever kept a journal or anything like that? Sure. I've written down a lot of thoughts and things that were going in my life and uh, busy times in my life to keep things spiritual and also keep my, my life straight. Um, also helps keep my anxiety, worrying uh, with the job that I have and the family. But uh, funny thing is, McConaughey and I went to Texas at the exact same time back in the uh, back in the 80s. He's a year younger than me, I believe, but we were at Texas at the same time, University of Texas. But we didn't know each other, but yeah, no, no never met him, but I'm a big fan. He was in the same fraternity as Cash Lambin, and when we would go in high school, which we probably shouldn't have been doing, but we would go to the dealt house fraternity parties with uh, cash lambin and his picture was on the wall of the fraternity there and i've always been a big fan i like to see him on the on the sidelines rooting for ut he's he's very down to earth like he seems like an everyman you know despite being this wildly successful celebrity movie star very much so i agree 100 percent. very much respect him and the work and then he's very articulate intelligent great representative of the university of texas but uh i have heard the that there's similarities in our voices but that's about where it stops <laughs> when i was a freshman at Sci falls high school you were the varsity assistant coach correct what was the highest our varsity baseball team was ranked that year do you remember I'm not sure we had access to rankings like they do these days with the internet and things like that. I just know that back in the 95 and 96 teams, which were pretty good, we were probably a top 20 in the state of Texas type team. That team had a really good offensive firepower and incredible uh, infield defense, which is what I, call, uh, I, I coached. Great speed in the outfield with some good pop in the lineup. 
but we didn't have the front end pitching that a lot of uh, schools uh, would have at the time. And as I discovered years later in my coaching career, I saw front end talent of, of big time pitchers. We had good solid pitching back in 95, 96, but they weren't dominant like I've seen, but it was a good, solid top 20 in the state of Texas team, maybe top 15, but it was a great team. I want to get into those dominant pitchers that you coached a little later, but do you remember the ordeal at the end of the season when we had our ace pitcher write something in a yearbook that ticked off the athletic director slash football coach? What do you remember about that day? I remember everything um, about that situation. Uh, school has had pretty much ended. We just um, the week before ended Lufkin's playoff run with an epic 14 inning win over them. They beat us on Friday night. We drove to their place on Saturday. We beat Lufkin in 14 innings, in which Brian Cracky goes all 14 innings, throwing 163 pitches. Seven inning, the last seven of which was perfect game ball, as a matter of fact. So you might wonder, why didn't you take him out? Well, the last seven, he didn't let anybody on base. And if I remember correctly, you scored the winning run to that game in the 14th inning. And then we had to come in in the bottom of the 14th. And he's been throwing perfect game ball, Brian had. And then he hits the first batter. And we were like, oh, my gosh, we fought so hard to get the lead in this game. And then he hits the first batter, first base runner they'd had in eight innings. And Coach Hayes goes out there to get him out. And Brian says, Coach, you've left me in here too long to take me out now. And next thing you know, we go with a 4-6-3 double play and then a pop fly, and we win that game. And I think, remember the next game, Brad, we we win the next game. Uh, we Even when the lights go out, and we beat them like 15-3 to because we still had all our pitching left because Brian <laughs> took the brunt of that game. But the very next week, we playing the Woodlands High School. Actually, it was called McCullough High School. And we had a one-game playoff set up at San Jacinto Junior College. And Kyle Rutherford was our number one pitcher. And he was also our three-hole or five-hole hitter. He Or four-hole hitter. He was three, four, five. He was a good, good solid uh, either DH or a hitter. Upon arriving to school that day, um, somebody said something was going on about a senior wills in which back in the day you would publicize in a senior will, I, Brad D'Antonio, leave to, you know, Chase Lamb in my dirty socks or something like that. Something silly. It was a silly little publicized book. And in that, it wrote something to the effect, I, Kyle Rutherford, leave to you, Coach Hooks, a $40,000 debt because that's what you cost me for having a three and seven football season. Coach Hooks was our football coach of the year, and we didn't have a good football season. And Kyle was our quarterback at the time that season. And he, I think, got benched for Jamie Bubella, who was a sophomore quarterback, a little more athletic, not quite the same arm, but really athletic. So we ran the option a lot at Side Falls. And so upon reading that, it's my understanding that Coach Hayes then uh, decided nobody playing for him is going to disrespect anybody with kind of words like that and decided not to play him in the game. And so, uh, nor as a DH or our pitcher. And remember, it's a one-game playoff, so it's winner take all. And he was our number one pitcher. But Coach Hayes made that decision We got on the bus and drove to San Jacinto Junior College. At one point, we took the lead in that game with Brian pitching, Cracky. Uh, of course, he's one week away from throwing 163 pitches. So at some point, he's going to get tired. He's got to be exhausted, even though he's 17, 18 years old. And so, if I remember correctly, was it – 
not Grant Irons, but Jared Irons, who went on to play middle linebacker at Notre Dame, hits a bases loaded double or triple. I think it was Grant. And I remember yeah. him making Kirk Christianick, who was probably 6'2", 220, yeah. 230, making him look like a little boy. Yeah, he was a first baseman. He's about 6'5", 240, left-handed hitter. The thing I remember about Irons is he was so enthusiastic at first base. When they would make an out, he was fired up for every out. He wanted to get 21 outs before anyone else, and I, I really respected his positive energy, and he got the big base hit. But what I really remember from that experience is as soon as the game is over, and that was a great team and a horrible way to end, but only one team's going to finish their season in the playoffs winning their last game, and that's going to be the state champion. But as great a team was, we had to have the police drive behind our dugout and escort Coach Hayes and uh, I think Coach Hooks, a football coach, off the premises. And so I rode the bus home with the guys um, after the loss. And that's what I remember. And then shortly thereafter is when the uh, the lawsuit hit in which uh, it was called Rutherford versus Cypher ISD, in which they sued under freedom of speech, saying that a person should not be punished for putting something in a publication. I got to play in that game because – Kyle Rutherford didn't start, so I got to DH. I hit in the seven hole. So when that decision was made not to start our number one pitcher, did you, were you asked for your input on that decision? No, no, that was a that I believe it was only Coach Hayes' decision. I wasn't asked about it, and I would have supported Coach Hayes in any decision that he wanted. But you might ask me. Brad, what did I learn from that experience? Because I went on years later to, you know, lead a, lead the team, and, and what would I've done differently? Now I can't verify this, but it's my understanding that Kyle had nothing to do with that. That actually the publication was put together by parents of the class of 1996, and kids could put stuff in there, but the rumor, the rumor was that. Actually, uh, Kyle's parents put that into the senior will. So if you're to ask me, looking back, what I would have done is I would have probably talked to Kyle before we left. Say, Kyle, did you put that in there? And can you please explain what was going on there? Because sometimes it's you'd hate to punish a kid for a mistake that the the parents had made. Now that's a that's a rumor. I'm not sure, but looking back on it, the only thing I would have done different is I probably would have called Kyle and Kyle explained this to me because I don't know that he ever got his opportunity to tell his side of the story. It was a huge deal. I remember Bob Lee talking about it on Sports Center. Is that right? Yeah. I did not know that. And as far as things that are quoted in yearbooks, I remember my senior year, I was asked about the first game of the season, we played against Josh Beckett, who ended up being the second overall pick in the draft. And they were ranked, I want to say, number one in the country when we played them that first game. I hit a ball, a double off of him in the first inning. And Chris Kunico, who was authoring this article for the yearbook, asked me for a quote. And when, I, when the yearbook came out, I looked at it and said, I didn't say that. So you're relying on 17, 18-year-old kids to quote other people. And I thought, why would he do that to me? It made me look like an arrogant prick. Right. And it's, it's cemented in there. I mean, it's, it's there forever. So, yeah, some, some investigation probably would have allowed cooler heads to prevail, perhaps. I was wondering if you maybe felt a little like Mike Pence in that situation. 
He was. Uh, I wouldn't say go to that level. <laughs> I wouldn't say go to that level at all. But it was an interesting situation. But I supported him. I knew that Brian. You could make an argument that Brian was our number one pitcher. I mean, Brian Cracky that year went like fourteen and zero with a zero point zero zero ERA. He'd been our horse all year long. But we knew in a in a big game, at least Kyle would have been our designated hitter because Kyle was a really good hitter. Look, I, I knew it was tough on the family, and then years later, I know that Kyle lost his brother uh, to a car accident, and I did reach out to the family when I became the head coach years later, just trying to reconcile. Uh, I thought Kyle did a lot of great things for our baseball program, and his, his family it was an unfortunate incident, but at some point, you have to bring together and uh, build bridges again, and offered him a, I wanted his picture for when he played at Texas State, and so we put him up on the, the wall of fame at at uh, Sci Falls, but that was, certainly was an interesting time. And that lawsuit went on for a little bit because I did have to go through the deposition on that, talking about that because they were suing for uh, freedom of speech, Brad. But the ruling, if I remember correctly, is the court said the court does not make lineups. And the behavior of an athlete has to be above and beyond whatever the, the code of conduct is. And a coach can hold a student athlete to uh, anything they want them to do. And not only threw out the lawsuit, if I remember correctly, but also ordered the Rutherfords to pay the court costs and lawyer fees for Cypher ISD. So that was going to not only did they lose, but now they had to come out money out of pocket. But if I remember correctly, Cypher ISD said, I tell you what, you don't have to pay our fees. Just don't appeal it and let's move forward. And I think that's because we, we never heard from it again. When I was a sophomore you were still the varsity assistant coach. So I'm going to back up a little bit in the, in the season. I was on JV, but I wasn't playing. And you walked up to me one, one day outside the dugout, and you said, are, are you Brad D'Antonio? You, you never could pronounce my name. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yes, sir. And you said, did you jump 18 feet 6 inches last year? And I said, yes, sir. And you said, son, what position do you play? And I said, center field. And the next game, I was playing center field and hitting fifth in the lineup. And I thought, this guy's got some pull. Shortly thereafter, you came and substitute coached our team on a trip to Klein Forest High School. And I thought, well, this is my opportunity to show this coach that I can play. There were only two coaches, right, on the varsity baseball team, you and Coach Hayes. Correct. What do you remember about that game? Why did you come and coach us? And I'm curious if you remember the speech that you gave us on the bus after that game. Vaguely remember it. I do remember. I remember vaguely do remember that uh, that game at Klein Forest. But what I do, uh, I remember you in particular, Brad, because um, it was a cold game. And I was young, so I guess they suckered me into going covering the JV game where I was a varsity assistant and went to that ball game. I believe I don't think we won. I can't remember winning that game, but what came out of that game is I think you hit two triples off the left center field wall, and you're left-handed, so you went oppo off the left center wall and hit two triples, but you could always run extremely well. Uh, as a matter of fact, the biggest memory I have of you besides those oppo shots at Klein Force is when we do offseason and you and Jamie Bubella would run 40s against one another and watching you two uh, animals running the, I don't know, 4-5, but 4-4, 4 4-4-2 that we ran. As, and But watching junior. these two guys that were built like just absolute <laughs> brick shit houses that could absolutely go. But I do remember you hitting it, and because you'd get to third base just standing up. And by the way, hitting a triple off the left center field wall is tough to do because, of course, that's closer to third base. 
you usually hit triples down the right field line or right center field gap, not down the left center, down the left center field gap. But I do remember after the game losing, I think we lost, and then we're on the bus, and I didn't think our team was – that JV took it particularly hard that we lost. And I think I had uh, something – I don't exactly remember what I talked about. Maybe you can reflect on that because I don't. But I remember it was sometimes my words can get a little more eloquent than others. And I think it was a pretty good speech, but it had, I, I don't exactly know what it was talking about. But uh, I do remember being on the bus shortly. I don't remember what I said exactly. Do you remember? We definitely lost, and so it was an ass-chewing. The bus was very quiet. It was dark. You were standing up at the head of the bus, and you're the driver. And you basically tore into us and and talked about if we ever wanted to play on the varsity, there was a certain standard that we had to play up to. And because I had played well that day, you had used me as an example several times. Um, and that's that's basically what I remember. We didn't have much access to you and the varsity, and so it was quite a treat to get you. Do you remember when I got into trouble for going to work at Burger King instead of going to our JV game one, one time? You don't remember that? Not at all. Tell me about that. Coach Hayes called me into his classroom, which was in the athletics hall. I was standing next to the television. You were off to my right. He was sitting at his desk. And you guys were not happy with me because I had a choice to make. My, my boss was requiring me to be at Burger King at 4 o'clock, and I think we had a JV game starting at 4 or 5 or something. And I just remember showing up late to the game. I think I went to work, and then I thought, you know what? I owe it to my teammates to be at my game. And I was really torn, and I could have used a, some direction in life, like a mentor type. Um, I was going through a tough time in high school, and I know I didn't share that with many people. It was a unique situation for me to be in, and and I didn't know what to do. So I ended up getting the worst of both worlds because my boss was mad at me for leaving work, and then I was benched because I tried to show up 10, 20 minutes before the game, and I wasn't in the lineup. And I think I maybe talked to Coach Hollick about that, and it got up to you guys. And, and yeah, that's how that transpired. We had such a loaded varsity team. As a sophomore, it might be surprising to people to hear that a, a division I went on to play Division One baseball that I wasn't on varsity. Mm-hmm. That's rare, but we were just so loaded with talent that it was it was tough to to crack the varsity squad. That was a '96 team that was had a lot of seniors on it. As Sci Falls evolved, we never had teams that had that many seniors on it. My goal at Sci Falls was to have maybe six or seven seniors per year tops. Uh, during freshman tryouts, if, of course, I have to have a freshman team, but if I could have six or seven really good players, we weren't like the Woodlands, we weren't like Kingwood, we weren't like Cy Fair. We didn't have 100 kids come out as ninth graders. We had maybe 25 kids come out, So we, but we had good talent. But that 96 team had an awful lot of seniors that had stuck around the whole time. And so, therefore, you being a talented sophomore, having to play on the JV, helped out our JV, um, but that – to me is kind of the issue we're dealing with in today's society right now is kids that are sophomores that can't believe they're not on the varsity when we have experienced varsity upperclassmen, juniors and seniors that have contributed. And I don't, I've, I've had a hard time the last couple of years in the role I'm in right now as a high school principal watching kids. What's wrong with the development of playing on the freshman team when you come in, whether it's baseball, football, basketball, volleyball for girls um, and then playing on the junior varsity as a sophomore because playing time is more important 
than sitting on the bench and then playing a two-year major contributor on the varsity. Um, as the head baseball coach at Side Falls, I had a very strict rule. If I was going to bring up a sophomore to my varsity, he was going to play every inning of every game as a sophomore on my varsity. Otherwise, he was going to play on the junior varsity. And so what that built was – is we wanted all three levels, the freshman, the JV team, and the varsity at Side Falls. But to kind of help out with keeping kids down on the JV and not having kids complaining, Brad, is we practiced, when I was the head coach at Side Falls, our JV and varsity team, we practiced together. So my shortstops, I would have four shortstops out there the taking ground balls, four second basements, four first basements, four third basements. They would be our junior varsity and varsity, and that really helped with the transition, Brad, when we did graduate kids, they already knew how practices worked and they knew kind of the expectations of what practice looked like. And also the upperclassmen were coaching up the kids that would replace them one day. And so, um, so what I'm seeing now is kids that don't make it to the varsity as a sophomore, they transfer. Wow. They leave. I'm going to go elsewhere. The loyalty in some schools is just gone. Even though you're getting great playing time on the junior varsity, you want the immediate gratification to go to the varsity, and you will transfer to a school and find a way to move to a school, lie on an address to go play on a team that is not nearly as good as the school that you're at right now, but you would rather be the so-called stud on a crappy team rather than being a solid role player on a very, very good team with potential to win a state championship. We see that all the time now. When people lie on their mailing address, are they using a friend's address or are they just going to Google Earth and finding an address? Or how does that work? So in order to enroll in a school, you have to have a bill uh, that would be a water, gas, or electric bill with your parents' name on it. So you might see a person go to someone that lives in another school zone that you want to go to and say, hey, can you put my name on your water bill, your electric bill? I'll pay the bill, and therefore, that is a way that you get a, you'll be able to enroll a kiddo there, even though you don't live there, but your name is on that bill. Even though you can go to HCAD, that's the Harris County Appraisal District, and you can put in the address and see exactly who owns that house, but the bill might not match it. That is a way that we see some people getting around it. The other way we see people getting around transfer rules and things like that is using what is called an address affidavit. An address affidavit means that I am going to say that I live with you, Brad, and your family. I'm going to send my child live with you and your wife because you live in the zone of the school I want your my child to attend because she's a great volleyball player and you live in a great volleyball school district. So that is something to – so people just fib on that, saying, and they don't live there. My daughter does not live with you, Brad, but we say that you do, and so that's how people can kind of get around the system. Now, word gets out. And that's why we every school district has what is called a district executive committee made up of all the principals and of the usually athletic directors. And we have to one at a time rule on if that kid moved for 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 athletic reasons, because that's completely against the rules. That happens. Sure, it happens. I mean, let's be quite honest. Brad, you had a son that was an incredible football player. You would probably want them to go into North Shore or go into Katy High School if 
if you wanted, if that's really what you wanted. Otherwise, you could just sit tight in your school, and he could be the foundation of building a great program at whatever school you're zoned to. But we do see families moving on. And it really has a lot to do. We see it a lot in basketball, AAU basketball, uh, kids moving around to see where their kids can go play. But we see that a lot these days. I would imagine they got it from LeBron. He probably started that in, what was it, 2011 when he went to Miami, and they figured they could just assemble the best team made of the, made of the best players. The transfer portal in college now these days, in which kids can go to a school and then they can get a transfer portal, and the next year they're playing at Texas this year, next year you're playing at wherever. Um, that transfer portal has made people – That's. It's a funny thing. I was here at the school just last week, and kids around me, talk, they didn't know I could hear them, but they were talking to one another, and the only thing they could talk about is where they were going to transfer to. It's like that's the only thing they can talk about. Where's the loyalty? And go to school where you're zoned. Now, if you pick up and sell your house and all your possessions, well, not your possessions, sell your house and move, good for you. You can move wherever you want, but when you live in one attendant zone, but try to finagle the system to go to another school, which is being more successful. And by the way, how egotistical is that to think that I'm so good, I can leave this school where I'm a JV player and jump over to that other school, school B, and I'm a varsity stud over there. Well, you're kind of talking about how bad is that school over there. Um, but we see that in today's society quite a bit. So what happens when you're voted against? Well, if you are voted against, you have to establish one year of residency, meaning you have to live in that house or that area for one year. And so you have to play one year of sub-varsity sport, whether that's junior varsity or freshman. So if today I was ruled against, then I could not play varsity basketball, for example, because we're in basketball season until January 9th, 2022. So really might work against the kid. Maybe he's on our varsity right now at this school, but not getting the minutes he wants. Goes over to another school, rule, rule, goes to another school, he's ruled against. Then not only is he not on the varsity here, he's on the JV at the other school, and he won't play again varsity for another year. So it really can work against you. You know, this happened quite a few years ago in Cypher. I don't know if you remember, Brad, the Agumake sisters at Cypher High School. Shanae and Neka Agumake were incredible basketball players at Cy Fair, and they ended up going to play at Stanford. They both were number one picks in the WNBA. Shanae is a broadcaster for ESPN. She works with Golick Jr. It's amazing. They're amazing young ladies. Well, they were incredible basketball players, incredible young ladies. Well, my wife, who was the basketball coach at Cy Falls at the time, lost her point guard, whose parents were transferring her over to um, Cy Fair High School. Well, my wife checked on the previous participation form, moved for athletic reasons, and so it was denied that she was allowed to play varsity. And then it went all the way to the UIL, University Interscholastic League in the state of Texas. And my wife had to go up there and testify. And they said, well, Coach McDonald, what do they have over at Cy Fair High School? Well, they have two of the best posts in the United States of America. What do they need over there? They need a point guard. And what does this girl play for you that's transferring over there? She plays point guard. So they knew exactly it was a transfer for athletic reasons. So she was denied. She played the next year, and she won a state championship her senior year. Wow. Yeah. I was a senior in 98. Hmm. You you were not the coach my junior, senior year. Didn't you stop? being the assistant varsity coach those two years? So what I had requested from Coach Hayes is I really wanted my own team. I wanted to coach – I wanted to coach third base. 
Uh, I wanted to make the, the game time decisions. I want, so I asked, because at the time you played the junior varsity game right in front of the varsity game, so I wanted to be the junior varsity coach and still be the varsity assistant. So we made that switch, and so I ran the junior varsity team, and I stayed, and I still coached the, um, the varsity. So I still consider myself a varsity assistant, but I ran the JV team. Was it for those two years? I think that was a two year two years I did that because the following yeah. year I became the head baseball coach. But I knew I, you have to you need years of experience. Um, it's not only just coaching baseball and dealing with uh, kids, but it's dealing with parents. It's dealing with you know grades. It's dealing with teaching your classes. You know, uh, I don't know if you understand if people understand listening to the podcast that a coach in high school might make a stipend, a baseball coach might make about four or $5,000 a year to coach baseball. That's all we got paid. But I got, at the time, I can't remember, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 to teach English. I was an English teacher, but um, yes, I wanted to be a head baseball coach. I remember, so um, about that those years that you were in high school, I was interviewing for head baseball jobs. I wasn't ready yet. I knew I wasn't ready yet. I mean, things, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I stayed put. I mean, I interviewed for jobs that weren't so good. Um, and someone even told me one time, Brent, stop interviewing. Matter of fact, it was David Pierce, who's currently the head baseball coach at the University of Texas, said, Brent, why are you interviewing for those job and assist those jobs? An assistant job at Sci Falls is better than ninety percent of the head coaching job. Just wait your time till you get a, the right head baseball job. So I just I mean I love Sci Falls. I love the kids, I love the community. We lived in the community and so um, I did want to, but then Coach Hayes um, out of the blue, decided to stop coaching and went into the maintenance department of Cypher ISD. And I got the opportunity to interview. And uh, Miss Pope, the principal, and Coach Hooks, the football coach, gave me that promotion. So I was the – I got the job as a head baseball coach 98-99 school year, the year after you and Chase graduated. Do you remember when you got the call that Coach Hayes was stepping down? I don't exactly remember – where I was, don't remember that exactly, but I do remember that he was going to go work. Um, coach Hayes had coached many, many years. He's a great coach, and he's still working. His birthday was yesterday, as a matter of fact. Brad, I had texted him a happy birthday. He said, how'd you know? I said, it was on Facebook. He goes, I'm not on Facebook. I said, but your wife is. <laughs> and um, he's now head of maintenance for all of Cypher ISD. Great man, but I just appreciated the years I got to work with him. Our friendship is distance now because I live out here in Humble now. But, you know, working with Coach Hayes, there he was a very, very loyal man. I like to tell a story about Coach Hayes real quick. Very interesting to consider this. that I had to, I've, I've thought about this many times. I don't know if you remember this, Brad, but I believe it was your team because what we had, uh, Josh Becker was on your um, – was one of the pitchers. Coach Hayes uh, was our head baseball coach. He worked with our pitchers and our, our catchers mainly, but mainly with our pitchers and – we're playing Sci Fair High School at Sci Fair High School, and, and we were up by one run, bottom of seventh, bases loaded, two outs, and Coach Hayes' son, Chad Hayes, comes to bat. Chad Hayes plays on the other team. He plays for Sci Fair High School. So he's co- so Coach Hayes is coaching against his son. Well, having coached my own son, since he was a little boy, I know exactly how to get my own son out because <laughs> I've thrown so much batting practice to him. Well, Coach Hayes knew that also. Yeah. Let's think about that for a moment, Brad. 
Archie Hayes, Coach Hayes, calls timeout, walks the mound to talk to Becker, and I think Lyons was our – Will Lyons was our catcher – to tell him how to pitch to his own son to get him out so we could win the game. And we did. And we – I believe we struck him out. We won the game. They lost. And Chad has to walk from home plate, put his bat down, put his helmet down, shake our hands, and we loved him. But could you imagine as a father, you want to see your kids succeed. But in this case, Coach Hayes had to call the pitches and orchestrate the pitches to punch out his own son to win the game for his school. But yet when he gets home, he's in the same house as his son who's in a really bad, dark place because he had the opportunity to be the hero. Instead, he struck out. That's something horrific to encounter, but it happened to Coach Hayes. How soon did you recognize that you had serious talent after you assumed the role of head coach at Sci Falls? So when, when you and Chase graduated, I thought we were a very solid team. We didn't have high-end pitching at all. We just had really good athletes like you and Chase. And Chase um, Lambin, I wouldn't say he was the greatest of all athletes, but he was a worker. He, you were a great athlete, Brad. Chase was a good athlete, but he worked. He was a professional since the day I knew him. The days I used to have to open up the weight room and let him in the weight because he wanted to work, wanted to lift constantly. But I knew we had some good young talent because we had the we had some big kids that were pitchers coming up. The Brad Knoxes, the Kurt Watzicks. We had some really good infield talent in uh, Chris Colecourse and Jeremy Wilkham. Um, but we had some really good-looking players coming up. I knew that they would really one day pay off because we finally had some big arms. We had a, a big right-hander named Todd Allison move in, a big right-hander. But we still had Brad Knox and Kurt Watzik that could really throw it. We had good outfielders, good speed, good solid team. But then all of a sudden, as those kids get a little bit older, and that was going to be the 2000 team at Cy Falls, we knew we had a good chance. And they, were, they got along real well. That was a good team. But then we saw – this incoming freshman named Scott Casimir and Clint Everett, the left-hander Casimir and the right-hander Clint Everett. We're like, wow, these guys have something. We saw that at incoming freshman tryouts, but we knew that, again, we needed six or seven good players out of every class. But those two kids coming in, and they were the class of 2002, they had something in their arms that was pretty electric. But they were both came into the school – I mean, they were 14 years old, they, and we were really good in the years they came as freshmen. So I didn't want to move them up to the varsity as a freshman and sit the bench. So those two guys played freshman baseball. They didn't play even junior varsity baseball. So that freshman team went went like 25-0. and 0. They won all their games because when Clint didn't p- pitch, he played shortstop, and when Scott didn't pitch, he played center field because they were great athletes. Uh, Clint was our leadoff hitter. And Scott was our three-hole hitter. They were all the way through high school. Now, I kept on the freshman team. They won. How great. There's one thing you can't teach is how to win. It just feels good to win. And those kids kept winning. And it feels, I mean, parents love it. You know, parents love to win, but kids love to win. But what they love more equally, maybe, is they love playing time. Because even though you might have a team that wins, if a young kid or somebody sit in the bench, there's somebody bitching on the bench, even though we're winning. You can have incredibly successful teams, but there's still some dissension on the bench because you should – I want to play more. So we didn't have that. And so then, of course, 
They didn't have to wait long. Well, actually, they did. Scott, we brought up to the varsity his sophomore year, but Clint played on the junior varsity his sophomore year to start the season. And people were wondering about that because Clint was playing on the USA junior national team, and I really didn't know he was as good as he was. I'll be quite honest. I didn't know Clint was as good. I knew his older brother, Chris Everts, played for us. Not the tennis player. He had a brother named Chris who was a good center fielder. But I didn't know how good Clint was because Scott just stood out so much with his left hand. It came out of his hand so fast, but it was an electricity he had. But So Scott played on the varsity as a sophomore. But later uh, that year when we made our run for the playoffs, uh, Clint did come up to our varsity as a sophomore and contributed. But then we graduated that real good class of 2000 with Chris Kokors and Brad Knox and Kurt Watzik and Justin Jackson and all those guys. But then we knew right away that we had two junior pitchers in Clint Everts and Scott Casimir that were going to carry us a long way. And did they? Yeah, I think those two years we went like um, 70 and four. <laughs> the only games we would lose would be the third, fourth, or fifth game in a tournament. We had two frontline pitchers. We had a Tuesday night pitcher and a Friday night pitcher kid named Justin Finsky that would be a number three pitcher. But back then, you only played a Tuesday and Friday schedule in district. So we would lose a tournament game. But, Brad, let me just kind of explain to you their stats for a moment, your listeners' stats for a moment. So Scott, as a sophomore, junior, and senior, averaged 19 strikeouts a game. In high school baseball, we only played seven innings. That's 21 outs in a game. He struck out 19. So we had to get two outs a game for him. And then Clint, in his two-ish years of varsity ball, averaged 18 strikeouts a game. Scott was was touching 96, 97, but he was pitching at 95 from the left side. And But uh, Clint would throw at 93, 94, but he threw a wicked, wicked major league breaking ball. And so when I say we didn't take many ground balls, we didn't take a whole bunch of ground balls that year. We did a lot of work offensively because if there's one thing that team needed with – with Scott and Clint is how can we score runs? We found any we were we were begging for runs. We were one of the worst offensive teams I've ever had. We were bunning, we were stealing, we were delay stealing, we were early stealing. We were stealing home on the continuation play with a guy at third base and a, the guy walks and jogs the first and keeps on going just to find a way. We knew if we scored one run in the first or second inning game was over because eat both of them ERAs were in the low low zero point one. They never gave up runs, so it was, it was, it was one or two hits a game was rare. Thinking back to when Chase and I were seniors, we probably had a bit of a reputation as partiers. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle with the same issues with Everts and Casimir when they were seniors? Well, those two guys, although they were friends and teammates, they didn't run together. They weren't in the same groups. The great teammates. They were great for Cy Falls. They are great for me, obviously. But I would say Scott was more like you and Chase. He had a lot of friends, very popular, good-looking young man, um, great family, great mom and dad. But he liked – the girls liked him, and he liked the girls. Uh, Clint was a little more reserved. So I don't know that we ever really had any big uh, problems with them partying and stuff like that. When they showed up on the field – those dudes showed up to play in a in a big way. But I will say that Scott, his senior year, taught me one of the best lessons that helped me 
direct my career for the rest of my career, not only as a baseball coach, Brad, but also as an administrator that I share the story with a lot of people. So it's an interesting story of senior year. So back in 2002, Brad, um, both Clint and Scott were getting scouted by everybody. This is kind of before the Internet. This is before websites were kind of going. We did have SciFallsBaseball.com. We were one of the first ones to have a website for our baseball team. But every Sunday, I'd get a phone call from 15 to 30 major league scouts every Sunday. When is Scott pitching? When is Clip pitching? Because the major league scouts would, you know, they'd be at the ball games. They'd bring their later in the year. They'd bring their cross checkers, their general managers. So they're paying for flights. They're paying for hotels, rental cars whatever meals they need while they're in town. Just think about the thousands of dollars are spent to come see the investment that is Scott or Clint Everett's or any major league prospect. So I had to make my decision based on the week of when I thought those guys were pitching. When is Scott pitching? When is Clint pitching? And so I did that based on tournaments, based on matchups. But typically in a district game, it'd be Tuesday night was, was Scott and Friday night was Clint. But in this particular case, we were playing in the St. Thomas tournament on Thursday so that first game, I was going to go with Scott, and on Friday, I was going to go with Clint. Well, that Wednesday, our um, aquatic science class at Sci Falls takes a trip, field trip, to Galveston, and Scott's part of that field trip. He goes there with the other kids, not just baseballs, baseball kids, and he, uh, whatever they do down there for aquatic science, bio, I don't know, I think it was aquatic science. They gather some fish that they're going to raise in their aquariums in that classroom all year long. And they get back, and Scott doesn't come to practice. But other teammates that were on that field trip, they do come to practice. Even though the trip gets back shortly after school, um, practice is still going on, Scott doesn't come to practice. And I had a very simple rule, Brad, no practice, no play. Now, if you call me in advance and tell me I've got a conflict, I'm sick, Okay, we can have a we understand that, but when you don't communicate, no practice, no play. Scott didn't show up on Wednesday. Every major league scout knows that Scott is pitching on Thursday. I've got to make a decision right there on the spot. Do I play a kid even though I've told everyone this rule, no practice, no play on Thursday, even though everyone's looking at me, people have flown in to see him. But where are your morals, ethics, principles? Where do you stand even though you said this is your rule? And so I called Debbie Casimir, mom, and I said, Debbie, Scott didn't come to practice today. He didn't call me. It's back when we had the old Nokia cell phones. It was old. And I said, there's no message on my phone. I don't know where he is. So Scott will not be pitching tomorrow. And Debbie, I remember the line was uh, hot. She was irate. Um, She wasn't cursing, but she was understandably upset. You can't do this to him. You can't do this to him. I said, "Uh, Debbie. He needs to be in my classroom tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m., and we'll discuss his situation, uh, and that was it. And Scott wasn't the best morning person, by the way. Not a lot of teenagers are, Um, not until you get to be about 50. (laughs) So Scott showed up in my classroom pretty pissed off, and I remember the conversation in my teen leadership classroom in room 2101. I said, Scott... You know my rule. The rule is very simple. If I give you special rules, it's going to cause problems for the rest of my career for this team. So you will not play. Not only will you not play today, you won't pitch today. You won't even play center field today. But you'll be the best teammate possible. And if you're not, you won't play on Friday either. Scott took it like a man. 
He knew what he did wrong. And if I remember correctly, he just went to go get his driver's license renewed. If he had come by and told me that he was getting his driver's license renewed, it was his last chance to get it done, no problem. But the lack of communication caused this situation to happen. He pitched on Friday. So Clint pitched on Thursday. We just flopped him. So I did have the uh, I did have the the fortunate opportunity to have a really good pitcher to be able to throw on uh, <laughs> I'll say uh, on on Thursday. So Clint took that spot, and then the cross checkers and the scouts came and again on Friday to see Scott. So it was it was a situation that I've used with uh, coaches here at the school that I'm a principal at now, but it really and truly <laughs> helped me for the years moving forward. I could tell that story to all my teams. If you're a bench player, if you think that I'm going to skirt the rules for you, I benched at the time the number one player in the United States of America because he didn't follow the rules. So I'll do the same to you. And then if you didn't understand, Brad, not only as a head baseball coach, I also had to coach freshman football. So in the football season, I had freshman football, which is great because I love coaching football in the fall. But it was very interesting. Those 14-year-old freshmen that think that they are the best football players ever – I would tell them that story. I'd say, I don't give a crap about losing a freshman football game. You think you're a great quarterback or running back? No, if you don't come to practice, you ain't playing. And they never tested me on that. (laughs) Was it a stressful time having two phenoms that you're coaching and making sure that you don't screw them up or ruin their arm? or Unbelievably stressful. Not only could we not score runs – but you had all the publicity about how awesome your team is. But we were really too deep of great pitchers, but our offense was very, very mediocre. Their junior year, they were a little bit better because we had a good catcher and Horatio Correa that could really hit the ball. But other than that, we didn't have a whole bunch of offense at that time. We had a, a sophomore in Clayton Haynes that could hit a lot. But he's a sophomore. How much are you going to really count on a sophomore to hit for you? You really count on your seniors to win games for you. Your junior seniors should carry your team, and a, a sophomore should be a role player and things like that. But, yeah, we were very. I was very stressed out about scoring runs, the pressure. But then on top of that, like you said earlier, Brad, is the stress of their arms and the safety of their arms and the investment that they have. Honestly, I didn't know where they were going to get drafted. I just knew that. Scott signed with Texas, and Clint signed with Baylor. Okay, great. But I didn't realize they were both going to be first-round draft choice and look at $2.5 and $2.15 million signing bonuses in their careers. But I was always cognizant to know of pitch counts. But the problem with those two guys and their pitch counts is they struck people out. Like a one-pitch ground ball out is a beautiful thing. Hmm. Scott was throwing – Strike one, strike two, strike three. Well, there's three There's three pitches right there. What if he throws a ball? There's four pitches. What if he throws another ball? Well, there's five pitches. You guys are eventually going to strike them out. But you can accelerate your pitch count rather quickly. But, yes, we were cognizant of his pitch count, both their pitch counts. But they were, they were so dominant. It was fun, but it was more enjoyable the years later after they graduated because they had teams that could really score a lot of runs. So given the uh, great pitching – I had more fun with the great offense. Did they talk to you about money at all? Two million, three million, especially since they had signed with Texas and Baylor already. Was it ever a consideration to go to college? And are those discussions that you had with them? They never. We would we would talk on the side about it, but I was never in the part. Remember, they got drafted after they graduated from high school, so they graduated the last week of May, and the draft was like the first week of June. 
And so I had no idea. They both had representatives. You couldn't call them agents. You call them representatives. The representatives of each of them separately for their families, they were talking money and things like that. I wasn't really in those discussions. But I had a good idea that Scott was going to take the money automatically and not go to Texas and play for Coach Garrido. I wasn't quite sure with Everett's because even though Scott was a good student, Everett's was a great student. And maybe Baylor somewhere he really wanted to go. But when Everett's ends up going number five to the Expos, who are now the Nationals, that accelerated the $2.5 million signing bonus that he took. Um, I think the, the neatest stories I got out of them is when they came back after their short season rookie ball, and they would come back driving different cars and Escalades and have these conversations. I remember Scott and I going to, I think it was Applebee's or Chili's near the school, driving his Escalade, and I said, so Scott, you got $2.15 million from the, from the Mets. He went number 15 because of a late-night deal that happened at the number three pick with the Reds. I said, so how do they pay you that? See, they didn't wire money to your account like they would these days. He goes, I came back from short season A-ball, and there's a check for $2.15 million at my parents' house. Remember, he still lived with his parents. They still live with their parents. I said, oh, my God, what do you do with a check for $2.15 million? He goes, well, I just drove to a bank, and I opened a checking account. I said, you, you didn't have a checking? No, I don't have a checking or savings account. I said, so what would you do? He goes, I went up to the bank, and... The, the girl, the front receptionist, I wa- and remember, Scott's 17, maybe 18 years old. He's got a baby. I don't think he has facial hair yet. He says to the receptionist, I need to open a checking account, please. And she goes, well, there's a $500 minimum uh, to open. He goes, well, I have this check, and it was $2.15 million. I said, what'd she do? He goes, well, coach, she grabbed her chest. She was like, oh, my God, hang on. I got someone for you to talk to. Now, of course, that's just a story for the very beginning. Scott had financial advisors, and he's done well for himself. His whatever 13, 14-year Major League Baseball career with investments and you know financial advisors, that's just one story. He did tell me the time that he went to go buy his first car, which was going to be a Cadillac Escalade when those were big time back in the early 2000s. They were walking around the dealership, and the, the salesperson walks to the parents to talk to them about what they're looking for. And they said, no, you don't need to talk to us. Go talk to that guy over there. And remember, he looks like he's eight years old, but he's really 18 years old. And, what? And he paid cash for it. And then he wanted those wheels that were called spree wells that could spin. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to a local place says, I need four spree wells for this car right here. They said, we don't carry those. Those are too expensive. Because you order them right now. I'll go get you cash right now. <laughs> and he went and paid cash for them. But those are stories. I lived through those kind of stories because that's no way I could have ever, ever, ever spent money. So it was very interesting. And, you know, we had other conversations, Scott and I did, down the years. My 40th birthday, I met up with him uh, in Miami. And he told me, I said, so, Scott, it's right after he, sold, he signed his three-year, $38.5 million contract with the Rays. Scott, I don't even know if Scott has a tattoo on his body. He's such a down-to-earth kind of dude. And I said, Scott, so have you ever bought anything with your money? I know you have your condo in Tampa. He goes, yeah, Coach, I just bought a Ferrari the other day. I was like, oh, my God, a Ferrari. What do those cost these days? He goes, like 250000 I said, really? Do you finance it for five years, or what do you do for that? <laughs> he goes, Mac, I pay cash for it. I said, my bad. <laughs> so it's a different world. I mean, these are, this is when Scott just made his first all-star game. But So my career has mainly been around really, really great athletes like yourself and Scott and Clint and just kind of living through their, vicariously through their experiences. 
I've heard his name many times. I don't know if we look alike. Maybe the fact that we're both left-handed, we're probably about the same height. But I was at a, a bar following a class reunion, and a guy who was a couple years younger than me, who would have been at school with me and then with Casimir after I left, he was introducing me to somebody and told that somebody that this is Brad D'Antonio. Man, when he was in high school, he got all the chicks. And that dude said, really? Like Casimir? And he goes, no, dummy, not like Casimir. Nobody got chicks like Casimir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about their social life. I, I kind of stayed out of that as, a, as a, I stayed in my lane, kind of mentored them. But y'all do have similar builds. He was a little bit skinnier than you in high school, but of course, through his major league days, it looks like he's thickened up. We've connected here and there at ball games and things like that. We were supposed to play golf last week, but things kind of got derailed, but he lives over here in the Conroe area. But we do keep up, and then Clint and I keep up. Clint is a baseball coach in the area. He got all the way up to AAA ball, but he's a baseball coach at St. John's uh, downtown, so he and I connect. Just uh, different things about what I did with practice schedule and things like that. But uh, he's a local guy also, still coaching. One more thing on Kashmir. He was the 15th overall pick, right? But he was expected to go higher than Everts, if I remember correctly. What happened there? So the story, as I understand, goes that he was going to be the number three overall pick to the Cincinnati Reds. And the night before the draft, the general manager of the Reds contacted his advisor and said, okay, what's it going to take to sign Scott? if we want him at number three. And my understanding is Scott and his advisor said, we just want whatever number three got paid the year before in the 2001 draft. And I want to say that was in the four or $5 million range of a signing bonus. And they just took that for what it's worth. It's, it's not like the football or basketball draft. When you draft in the baseball draft, you're looking at signability and you've already kind of locked in your spots already before the draft is made. There's not 15 minutes between every pick in the Major League Baseball draft as there is in the NFL draft. So when he said he wanted four or five million, like the year before, which is not out of out of this world to ask for, it's what they got the year before, the Reds went with a local prospect who was willing to take $2.5 million. So the Reds, in my understanding, uh, you need to research who they took in the 2002 number three overall. I think it was an Ohio boy that took $2.5 million. And so the next thing you know, the number four pick had already pre-selected, who, or knew who they wanted. They had agreed to terms already. Five was going to be Clint. They had already agreed to 2.5, and then six, seven, eight. I was actually at Scott's house when the draft was going on. And by the way, the draft back then was done on the internet. It was done like on a radio. It was not on television at all. And so a lot of people are sitting on the stairs, sitting in the foyer, sitting in the living room, sitting in the kitchen. It's just quiet as can be. And they just went through it. The number one pick. And then the number two pick. And then when the number three pick is not Scott, they're like, whoa. People are kind of looking around. It's kind of awkward silence. But remember, there's only like one to two minutes between each pick. It's quick. And then the number five pick is Clint. Everybody applauds because it's his teammate. Then six. He's sliding to seven. Now we're eight, nine, ten. Keep going. And finally, number 15, New York Mets. Clint uh, is uh, now Scott Casimir. You're like, well, thank goodness. And... And lo and behold, he got $2.15 million right out of high school. You have done a good job of keeping in contact with everybody after 
high school and even after college, I came back to Houston. You, you and I went to lunch a few times. You say that you stayed out of people's social lives, but I remember you asking me one time how I felt about the girl that I had dated for six and a half years started dating one of my teammates who was two years behind me. And I knew you were closer with him than me. Obviously, you coached him and not me. I don't know if you inserted yourself in the middle there, but what prompted you to ask me what I thought about that situation at lunch that day? Yeah, I really didn't know who dated who. I didn't know who you dated in high school. It was none of my business. Honestly, I didn't know any. I didn't know the young ladies at Cy Falls unless they played basketball for my wife. I knew the guys. I knew the football players, the basketball players. I knew the the baseball players. But I want to say exactly what prompted me was Chris calling me, because Chris Kokorsch was my team captain as when he was a junior, when he was a senior. He and I remained close, and he called me to talk to me and tell me about his engagement to Anne-Marie. And I honestly didn't even know who Anne-Marie was. Mm-hmm. Of course, I coached Thomas, her older bro- her younger brother. I coached Thomas football, freshman football, but I didn't know that there was a dynamic that you used to date a girl named Anne-Marie, and now he's going to engage a girl named Anne-Marie. And I don't know if he called me to see how you thought about it or – you know, he was, but he respected you enough. Y'all were teammates. Chris is a classy human being like you are also, classy family, first rate with all kind of respect. But I think out of the blue, I said, let me just call and make sure he's okay, um, that you're good with it. I just think, you know, we were a team. Uh, I love all the guys that ever played for me. Yeah, we have some moments with all of our guys, but we all grow up and go through them. And there were moments in, in sports. I think athletics is the greatest way of teaching teamwork. Um, but I just wanted to kind of see how you felt about, I guess I found out at that time that love your life through high school is now engaged to your teammate. Are you going to be okay with it? And we had a conversation. Yeah. You remember what I told you? I don't. I told you I was great with it. They're both great people and I want them to be happy. And I deliberately avoided contact with either of them for years and years. So yeah, as I understand it, they are happily married with two kids living in Houston. Everything works out for a reason. What happened after you lost those tremendous talents, Casimir uh, and Everts? Did I ever tell you how we lost that last game with those knuckleheads when they were seniors in high school? No. So we had made some good runs in the playoffs their junior year, and then we made a good run their senior year. So their senior year, we were unbelievably good. I mean, we have, you know, best of three series. We've got the we've got the pitchers to, to, to dominate. But now I think we're in the third or fourth or fifth round of the playoffs, close to making the state, and we're playing Round Rock Westwood. That's who we're in the region with. That's a big region, isn't it? But they have a big kid named Brent Cleveland at Round Rock Westwood that went into the – I would think he was the end of the first round split session before the second round, went to the Detroit Tigers. Big right-hander, played center field, and we had to play them. And he was a big, powerful pitcher also. And so we had to play them. And when you play a team out of Round Rock, you're going to play a Wednesday first game, best of three series, play Wednesday – then you're going to take a travel day off for Thursday because it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive between each place. And then you're going to play Friday. And you'll play the doubleheader on the Friday. You could do it, also do it a Thursday, day off Friday, play Saturday. We decided to play uh, Coach Bra- Bart Bratchard at Round Rock West. Well, he's retired now. Wednesday, day off Thursday, we'll come play on Friday. So we're going to play at our place on uh, – we're going to play – I'm sorry, we're going to play at their place on Wednesday. 
Well, we had just barely beaten Round Rock Stony Point the weekend before, and Casimir hustling out a, a, a ball in the top of the seventh inning at their place twists his ankle on first base when he hits it. When he hits first base, when he plants his foot in the base, he twists his ankle. Well, we finished the game, we ended up winning the series, which is another story another time. And so here's the problem. We beat them Round Rock Stony Point, and Casimir now has a sprained ankle, and that's a Saturday. Well, his mother on Sunday, instead of putting ice on it, puts heat on it in a whirlpool. And if you know what happens with sprained ankle and hot water, it blew up like a grapefruit. So when I'm playing Round Rock Westwood on Wednesday night, Scott is not ready to pitch. He cannot land on that foot and pitch. So when we go to their place, I throw our number three pitcher on Wednesday, Will Hawes, and they throw Brent Cleveland. So the whole world of Austin Round Rock is there to see Scott Casimir pitch at their place on Wednesday. But he can't pitch because his ankle's bad. Now, he can play center field, but he can't land on his foot and pitch the whole time. So Brent Cleveland's going to pitch against Will Hawes, and they beat the dog out of us. They beat us 10 to nothing. They beat us so bad in a five-inning game that they took Brent Cleveland out after three innings. So we couldn't even keep that guy in the ball game. Well, here's, here's where the, the, the cards don't stack up right for us. So then we get to Friday. We're going to play the doubleheader at our place. We're down one game to none. We get rained out on Friday. Okay, well, Scott gets another day to rest his ankle, but that gives Brent Cleveland another day to rest his arm, who only pitched three innings on Wednesday. So we play on Saturday. And they throw their number two, who's a good pitcher against Casimir, and we win that game. We stole home to win that game in the bottom of the seventh inning. It's the dumbest continuation play that runner on third base, Tony Bonura walks, keeps going on first base, and for some reason they try to throw the guy out at second base and we score from home, from third to home. Why you would even try to throw the guy out at second base, I, I still have no idea. Is that one to nothing? Uh, I want to say, uh, say two to one. Mm. Two to one, three to two. Something really low scoring. But, okay, we win the game. We're excited. So here comes Clint to throw game three, the deciding game. But guess what they can do? They can bring, bring Brent Cleveland in. There were no pitching rules for pitch counts like there are now in the state of Texas. And so we got Clint Everts versus Brent Cleveland in game three for all the marbles. And so they're up four to three on us in the bottom of the seventh. I got – Runner on first base. I think I get a base hit out of, out of Clayton Haynes. I get a walk out of Todd Colcourst. Get a pinch runner in for him. Got runners at first and second, two outs, and here comes Clint Everts, and Brent Cleveland is throwing on fumes. He is exhausted. He's done all he can do. He's a horse. He's done the best he can. And we just know he's first pitch fastball. It's humming in there fast, but it's straight, and it's all he's got. And Clint is a good hitter, and he's going to jump on first pitch fastball. We're down four to three, tying runs at second base, as I said, winning runs at first base with a good runner in Corey Drake, who's pinch running for Todd Colcourst. And Clint hits a bomb. He hits a bomb in the left center field alley. It is gone. I mean, it, it's it's out of here. Everyone's holding up their hands, but, you know, because it's, it's, it's crushed. 
There was no wind that night, but the guy from uh, Clayton Haynes from second base is running by me, and I'm waving him in. He's going to be the tying run. And Corey Drake from first base, I am, I'm telling him, hurry up just in case the ball drops. You're going to score the winning run. We're doing a walk-off to keep going to go to state. And the center fielder jumps over the fence and left center field wall and pulls the ball back and it ends the game. And that's how our season ended. It was one of the greatest catches I've ever seen in my career. And it was the backup center fielder because the starting center fielder was their pitcher in Brent Cleveland. But we thought the ball was gone. It was a shot. It was like the shots that you hit at Klein Forest. <laughs> but it was Clint jumping on the first one. And it, because in the and uh, at Cy Falls, the wind always blew out there. And it didn't blow out that night. It was dead still. The uh, wind was blowing straight down that night. The, uh, and that's how our season ended because of a great catch by the Round Rock um, Westwood center fielder. By the wood. Wood. Wow. By the wood fence. It didn't even get to the link fence. It was dead straight, 375. It was 385 to dead center field. It was 375, mm-hmm. kind of the alley right there. He jumped over it with his with his glove hand and pulled it back. And we, I was just stunned silence. But when you lose with a team that was that good, you would think there's going to be a lot of animosity, yelling, screaming, you were underachieved. No, we played against a very good team that went all the way to the state championship, and we lost that, but it was that close. At what point do you decide to get out of coaching? Well, I kept in the game for, uh, was it maybe about four or five more years because we had great teams after that. We had great teams with the uh, Josh Averts and the Ryan Jenkins and the Joey Kenworthys that all went to play Division One baseball. We just had great teams. Our teams went deeper with those average to good pitching, but we had, we could score 14, 15 runs a ball game. It's amazing. I didn't coach any different. We just had a different set of talent pools. I still coached them hard, and we had great assistant coaches. About that time, we started we started to have children. Uh, Angie and I, who was our basketball coach, as I said, at Cy Falls, we started to have children, and our uh, – Principal Robert Worthy, our assistant associate principal, Becky Denton, who's now the principal at Cy Falls, said, Mac, you do a good job in the classroom. You do a good job at baseball. Have you ever thought about being an administrator? And I said, nope, never in a million years. I love what I'm doing. I'm Coach McDonald. I'll be Coach McDonald forever. I'm good. And they said, well, we, we think maybe you would have a bigger effect on a greater population if you'd to consider it. Well, I had my master's degree in, um, in school administration, so... I listened for a couple of years, and next thing you know, I I accepted a position as assistant principal at Cy Falls High School. I want to say like in around 2007, I spent three years as assistant principal, but they still called me Coach McDonald around Cy Falls. So I was at Cy Falls a good 16 to 18 years as Coach McDonald, both as a teacher, coach, and then assistant principal. But I got out mainly because of opportunities. Brad, I never looked for jobs. Yeah, I did early in my career looking for my first head baseball coaching job, but I never looked ever again for a job. They kind of kind of came and found me. So if I could say, just do a good job where you're at, and people take notice of that. Was it a tough transition to be away from baseball? It was incredibly difficult. I'll tell this story. So David Hughes, Coach Hughes, was our soccer coach at Cy Falls. He had left coaching before me a couple years earlier, and he was over at Cy Fair High School as an assistant principal. In my first six weeks as an AP assistant principal at Cy Falls, Brad, I was miserable. I hated it. I loved winning. My drug of choice was winning. I loved winning. We won a lot at Cy Falls, whether it was football, basketball, or baseball. We won a lot, and I, and I kind of... I got caught up in the ego part of it. I loved winning. Not that I was a part of it. I had great athletes. I wasn't a great coach. I had great athletes. 
And so when I wasn't part of that anymore, and as assistant principal, do you know what APs deal with all day? They deal with shit. They deal with the behavior of kids that do bad things all day long. At the school I'm at right now, you know, 99% of our kids are great. So we're dealing with 1% of the kids that are just absolutely making bad choices and they need some consequences for what they're doing. So that's what I was dealing with. Instead of dealing with positive things every day, I was dealing with the the dark side. So I was miserable. So I had to call Coach Hughes and say, well, how do you like this? Why would you like this? Man, this is miserable. He goes, you have to embrace that every day is different. You never know what's going to happen every day. You might have a plan of what you're going to do today, classroom observations, go see this, go do this, but you never know what's going to walk in your door and know that every day you serve that purpose. And from that day forward, you just change your mindset to more of a growth mindset of I'm every day is going to be a great day. Yeah, I get some some stuff, some shit that hits my door every day in the role I'm in right now. But I embrace it, and I try to make the school I serve right now. I'm just going to serve kids and serve the school, um, serve the community best I can, and do the very best I can. Some days are great days. Some days are just going to be rough. And right now in COVID-19 pandemic, it's very, very difficult to work in a school setting right now. And you have had an opportunity to make a much bigger impact, I imagine, as a vice principal principal versus coaching 25 guys every year. Yeah, that, that I now, um, in my baseball program at Sci Falls was 45 guys, 15 on the freshman, 15 on JV, 15 on the varsity. That was kind of what my, my measure, my metric. And now I have a school of 3,000 um, in which I hopefully am a positive influence. Of course, I don't have the intimate relationships I have with everybody, but I know that I can um, mentor a staff of about 250 kids here at Summer Creek High School and hopefully role model and show up day in, day out. Listen, I'm not a super individual i'm i just know i'm a grunt i show up day in day out you know i'm going to be here i've been in public education now brad and for 28 years and i've missed school i've missed work three times i've missed three days of school in 28 years Um, my daughter was born my son was born and my father-in-law passed away otherwise i'm going to be here day in day out and get the job done and be here for our kids and our staff so uh, hopefully i bring a work ethic that our uh, i had as a coach and I'm not bigger than the job that I – I mean, I, I direct traffic. I'll pick up the trash. But – and that kind of attitude is contagious, hopefully, with our staff we have here. So you have a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old, and the birth of your kids coincided with taking a job as a vice principal. You probably got a significant pay raise. You were able to go home earlier from work, presumably. So, yeah, the kids are about, they're 17 and 15, but their birthdays are at the end of this month, which is right now January of 2021. They're exactly two years apart. I coached for maybe one or two more years. It was kind of tough because my wife's a basketball coach. I'm a baseball coach. To to be parents and be present, I wanted to be present at their sporting events, whatever they were going to do. But I wouldn't say there was a significant pay raise when I went from head baseball coach to assistant principal at Sci Falls. Not a big pay raise. By the way, you get more work days also. Your contract is longer as an assistant principal. You start earlier in the in the school year 
year and you also end later in the school year. But the biggest thing is my freedom of my time. Time is the most valuable thing that I've ever given my children. I have the time. I've never missed a volleyball game of my daughters. I never missed a theater production of either one of them. I'm at every one of the baseball games. I would coach with my sons. But the biggest thing that I invested in my kids is the time. And so, yeah, I did make a little bit more money. Now I make more money as a, as a building principal. But back then, the investment was the time that I have with my children. I will, they'll tell you forever, now that they're almost done with their, their high school career, Brianna graduates in May, is I was there. Where's your dad? He's always at every single game. I was at everything they've ever done. Um, and so the biggest investment I ever made with them was the time that I had. So I didn't make a whole bunch of money right out of the gate, but I didn't have to work those late night baseball games on a Tuesday or Friday. I could be at their events. I could coach them or I could just sit. You know how great it is, Brad, and you're going to experience it when you and your wife have your daughter later this month is just to sit in the stands and watch them do their thing, whatever the thing is. I don't know what the thing is. My, My kids tried everything to find their thing whether it was orchestra, whether it was theater, whether it was tennis, whether it was soccer as a little kid. And you just have the best time um, with what the snack is after the game of the baseball game or the soccer game. So, Brad, the main thing is, is I respect you so much and your Man Overseas podcast is I respect the time, and the, the time value that you're going to have with your children and your wife. Because I have I live my life, I have no regrets. I have a difficult job as being a building principal, but I have been able to spend every moment with my both my children and my wife. We neither one of us regret what we've done. I love that. I I couldn't resonate with that more because I feel like I've given myself an opportunity to be super dad and it's taking lessons from men like you that tell me that what's most important is spending time with your kids. There's nothing, there's no substitute. You can't buy them things that would replace you being there in their life. So that's powerful. Is what you're going through now with COVID, is it a similar event like in terms of magnitude as what you went through with Hurricane Harvey? For the, for the listeners, here's an interesting indoctrination to being a high school principal. So I was the principal of Wood Creek Middle School here in Humble ISD, which is across the street. It's a direct feeder to Summer Creek High School where I'm the principal now. I was the principal there, uh, administrator there for seven years. I was the head principal for five, the last five years. I then interviewed when there became an opening at Summer Creek High School to become the high school principal. I love high school. I love Cy Falls High School. High school's my thing, although Wood Creek was a great thing also. We kind of treated that like kind of like a high school. It's a great place right across the street. I got promoted um, to become the principal at Summer Creek High School in August four years ago. I can't remember the exact. Was that 2017? Two weeks later, I... I have just met the staff here. I don't know, but maybe 10% of the staff at at Summer Creek. I know 100% of the staff at Wood Creek, the middle school where I was a principal. I hired them all, most of them, 99% of them. I come over here, I don't know anybody. But they know my reputation because Wood Creek has a good reputation. It's a good school. All the kids come over here. And I come over here and I have a faculty meeting with them. And I'm like, hey, welcome. Um, This is my background. Here's my wife. Here are my kids. And I have some simple meetings with each department. I have simple keep, stop, start meetings with every department, the math department, English department, every department, uh, history, science, et cetera. What do you want to keep doing at Summer Creek High School? 
Uh, what do you want to stop doing at Summer Creek High School? What do you want to start doing at Summer Creek High School? Give me some ideas of how we can make this the greatest school of all time. And that's what I've always wanted to do when I was the baseball coach at Cy Falls, when I came to Summer Creek or Wood Creek. How can I make this the greatest school possible? Because I cannot be the only owner of all the information. Everyone has great ideas. Let's come together and make this a great school that you want to work and kids want to come to school. Because if you're happy, the kids are going to be happy. So that was, I'd been been on the job for two weeks. And then it was a Friday, don't remember the exact date, school starting on Monday. And my assistant superintendent, Mr. Kramer, had called and said, hey, there's a rainstorm on the way coming in. Let's let your staff go home at noon call them together, and then tell them that they'll be back on Monday. And so we called a faculty meeting in our auditorium. We called our PAC, Performing Arts Center, and I told them, hey, guys, hope everything's ready to go um, in your classrooms. We'll have the kids coming in on Monday. School starts on Monday, but there's a rainstorm coming. Um, they call it Hurricane Harvey, but it probably, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but go ahead and leave early today, and uh, we'll be in contact. Fortunately, everybody was on the Remind 101 app. It's a way I can... Remind everybody what's going on, update all my faculty, and I'll see you on Monday. Hurricane Harvey hits, and I've been on the job for two weeks, and uh, we didn't start school right away because even though Summer Creek High School did not flood, our sister school up the street in Kingwood, Kingwood High School, does flood. It gets, what, four or five or six feet of water in it, completely submerged, completely cannot be occupied. And I've been on the job for two weeks, and now we have to brainstorm exactly how can we coexist with 2,100 Summer Creek kids and 2,800 Kingwood High School kids? How do we manipulate a schedule to educate that almost 5,000 kids when they cannot get in their building at all? How do we do that? So we get the staff in, our staff back, and I remember the one thing that I said. It was very much from the uh, the Tom Hanks movie. I said, failure is not an option. Apollo 13, failure is not an option. And the thing is, you got seniors that they still want to have a senior year. They want to have prom. They want to have homecoming. We still got to have a football season. We still got to have dances. We got to still got to have to give our AP advanced placement exams. We got to still have dual credit. We still got to have fun. Kids got to have fun. How do you do that when you know you cannot put 5,000 kids in this building? It's not possible. So then you come together with a great staff. You come together, great central administration, great assistant superintendent, and Trey Kramer, your transportation department. You got to figure out how you're going to bus in your kids, then how you're going to bus them out. Then bring in the Kingwood kids. How are you going to cross these kids? You're not worried about COVID. You're not worried about, you know, social distancing, thank God. And you're kind of concerned about the whole kids walking past one another and stuff like that. You're worried about safety because, you know, you got rivalries. You know, we had the langham Sci Falls rivalry. Would there have been fights if you'd have been sharing the same school? What yes. Do you th- yes. How do you do that so there aren't fights? Well, I just... Looking back now, we learned an awful lot. We uh, so, uh, so Summer Creek, we went to school from 7 to 11.15 in the morning. 
So think about it, Brad. Yeah, it was an early start, but you were done at 11.15. How great would that have been? <laughs> that was my daughter's <laughs> freshman all year. Over, all afternoon. Yeah, that was my daughter's freshman year. Whereas, the, and then Kingwood came in at 12.15, and they went till 4.30. So you had to really work with child nutrition. You had to work with uh, busing. You had to work with special education. How exactly does that work with, you know, parents need their special needs child to be in school all day long so they can work. There's a lot of things that had to go in, and we had to get it done in two weeks to figure out the schedule, and there were bumps in the road, but there was never, ever, never not one sense of animosity between any kid, any staff member. It was one of the best reputation builders that Summer Creek ever got. At the time when I came to Summer Creek, we kind of had a little negative stereotype at this school. Summer Creek High School, for all your listeners, is a very diverse. It's not a Title I school. We have kids that have a lot, and we have kids that don't have a lot, but it's not a Title I economically disadvantaged school. Explain but, Title I real quick. So Title I is a federal kind of um, grade. If your school has over 40 to 50% of kids getting free and reduced lunch, they get extra federal funds. So therefore, you're considered your school is um, um, economically disadvantaged. Well, that's not necessarily, we have a population of Summer Creek that are economically disadvantaged, but that's a not a large population. It still is about 20 to 30%, which is a large amount, but not, we don't get any federal funds. Whereas Kingwood High School is different than us. It is not diverse for the most part. Great kids, but it is very, um, most of their kids are Caucasian, well-to-do. I don't know their economically disadvantaged is less than 5%. So there's a little bubble around Kingwood for the most part, but they came to this school. We opened the doors and they were fantastic to us. We were fantastic to them. And now what, when they left after spring break, because they were with us about three quarters of the year, is they left us and an entire community said, whatever you've heard about Summer Creek High School, false. That's great people, great kids. Um, and that's what we always need to get out. But you don't know it yet. You don't know that information, Brad, until you set foot into the door. You know, you can spread rumors or you can uh, make assumptions about people until you get to know them. And when Kingwood got to know us, we got to know them also. They had their own reputation. They're great kids also, great teachers, great administrators. But it truly was uh, an interesting time. And we thought it was the worst thing we'd ever go through in our lifetime, Brad, uh, as, an, as an educator. But it, does, it pales in comparison to this COVID-19 pandemic. What we're going through right now, you have to be an educator in the building. What our teachers deal with on a daily basis is unreal. It is, they put in so much work in the classroom and it is just so difficult because we have 3000 students here Brad 15 I'm sorry 1800 kids come to school every day but we have 1200 kids that stay home and do their do their homework uh, at their house they do the schoolwork at their house well how do you edu- educate kids cuz all you know and all I've always known is you go to school and that's how you get educated well we've got 1200 that don't ever come in this building. Why is that? Well, combination of uh, they're scared of the of getting COVID nineteen. Their parents are scared. They're scared, and now because we've seen such a low rate of spread in the school, because we all wear masks, we do our best socially distance. But let me just say this: kids are terrible at socially distancing. They love being all up on each other. They, you know, 
Um, they love hold, boy, boyfriends and girlfriends. They still like holding hands. They still kiss and stuff like that. We try to tell them not to, but they sneak away. But some now some kids just stay home because they think it's easier. They can work and do their homework at night. We do have a low infection rate here. We have about 15 of our 3,000 that have COVID-19. But knock on wood, after about 7 to 10 days, they feel perfectly fine. And they come back in 10 days to 14 days after they get a negative test and things are good. But some kids are doing it because they, they're scared. Some kids are doing it because they, they, there's a system that's available to them. They can work all day long. Um, and then we have some kids that play on sporting teams that stay home, but they still come to football practice. They still come to basketball practice, which is the weirdest thing to me because you won't let a kid come to school, but you'll still let them play football, so they'll let them play basketball. But you know what? That's their right to make that choice right now. You have said that you do not focus on state-mandated testing at all. What is your philosophy there? So for, for your listeners, a state-mandated test in the state of Texas is called the STAR test. So there are five tests at the high school level, the English 1, English 2, Algebra 1, Biology, and U.S. History. Those tests have to be passed in order to graduate from high school. Not only do you have to pass all your classes, but you have to pass those tests. Now, there are some stipulations that get you around those tests, such as special education. Um, you get a certain number of times to take them, but you can still graduate if you don't pass them if, you have, if you're under a certain umbrella. But those are high-stakes tests that really push some hot button topics that make kids nervous. But as the leader of Summer Creek High School and before the leader of a middle school, and I got this from Becky Denton, the principal at Sci Falls, because her philosophy is the exact same as mine. And I've got to be quite honest, I stole this from her, is we don't even talk about it. Some schools do, and I don't fault any schools that do, because some people have their federal money tied to how well they do on their state mandated tests some jobs principal's jobs are based on how kids do on their test we i i work in a great district in cypher i did and now in humble in which our superintendent does not the school board doesn't put the pressure on the superintendent to have really high scores the superintendent doesn't put it on me to have really high scores i don't put it on our teachers the pressure and the teachers don't put the pressure on the students to make really high scores. Now, do we want to do well? Of course we do. But what we try to do at Summer Creek High School is hire great teachers, retain great teachers, give them a place they really want to work, on a day-to-day -day basis give a great education, building up to those exams, and a whole year of education and take care of that exam. But we don't teach the test. We give a quality education. We think a well-rounded education, which you've seen parts of the school and all the kind of electives we have here, kids, be, uh, kids get, that can do here at Summer Creek High School. But we don't teach to the test. We hire great teachers. We get kids involved in extracurricular activities such as band, choir, orchestra, dance, athletics, cheer, robotics. And we let the test take care of itself. And what we noticed is our scores just go up. Even the year we were with... Kingwood High School only going to school for half a day. Our scores went up. And the state of Texas, actually, Brad took notice of that. They thought, oh, Summer Creek's going to crash and burn because they're only going to school half a, half a day. Our scores went up. Discipline obviously went down. We, obviously, if you're only here half a day, school, you know, discipline's going to go down. But it went and completely went away. But our scores went up. They were like, how did that happen? It really has something to say about the intensity of shorter class periods. If you're here all day long, you can have some mm, 
some wasted time, some foolishness, some twiddling your th- of your thumbs. But when you know you only have 45 minutes, you got to get it all in on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the Tuesday, Thursday classes. The intensity in classes and the folks in classes were fantastic. And so the very next year, Summer Creek applied to still go to school at a modified schedule. We don't go to school the same amount of times other schools do. Is then the state of Texas said, yeah, based on your record of what you did during with Kingwood, yeah, we were a kind of a test case, and we our scores continue to go up, even though we go to school less than anybody else. The uh, state of Texas says you have to go to school for seventy five thousand six hundred minutes seat minutes. You're sitting in a seat for seventy five thousand six hundred minutes in a year. Well, we get a reduced waiver because of what we've done in the past, and we're kind of a, a test case for the state of Texas and the, the TEA, which is the Texas Education Agency. The tour you gave me wanted me – the tour you gave me earlier made me want to send my daughter here. This school is beautiful. Like the robotics lab, you're, you were telling me that kids, kids nowadays – choose which direction they want to go like they're not graduating as generalists and then going to college and taking two years of general studies getting the prerequisites out of the way can you talk a little bit about what options high school kids have now that i was so amazed by it's it's crazy what kids have the options in the state of texas i can only speak for the state of texas is we have kids that choose a pathway that they want to go their ninth grade year. They're not exactly locked into that their entire career. They can kind of pick and choose what they want to check, what they want to do. We have all kinds of things for kids at, in Humble ISD and Summer Creek High School for them to choose. We want them to choose platforms in which they are interested in. Of course, you have your basics. You have your English. You have your science. You have your math. But if you want to study culinary arts, we have a culinary arts area here. You saw it, Brad. It's unbelievable. We have court systems. If you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a judge. If you want to be working court, we have a we have a, a court here, a courthouse here, just exactly for that. You saw that also. I took a video. Look for that in my Instagram story. I could not believe that you walked me through a makeshift courtroom so that high school students could go through mock trials. I assume that's correct. That they can do awesome. exactly that. We have lots of guest speakers. We have a robotics room for kids that are want to be future engineers, mechanical engineers. We have, of course, health science. If you want to be a nurse or a doctor or a, uh, a pharmacist, we have farm tech here. If you want to go that direction, we have, of course, ag. Ag is not new, but you know we go now vet tech. You want to be a veterinarian? We have vet tech classes here. We have auto tech, obviously. And we have lots of things offered, but the neatest thing, the newest neatest thing is we have a tiny house project here at Summer Creek, which kids can design a house on the CAD software, computer-aided design. They design a house, but what we do here at Summer Creek High School is we actually have built, we're on our second tiny home right now, and so you walked in it, and you have a video of that also, Brad, in which that house was designed by our students, and through their architecture class is now they are building a house, the second one which gets donated to a homeless veteran. So we have to fundraise every year about $25,000 to build that home. Is our second home we're going to build. Kingwood Park High School has also built two homes also, but through the vision vision of Al Segura, one of my assistant principals, we have kids not just sitting in a classroom learning, but actually putting their hands on a house that they're building that will be hauled away, put on land donated in Liberty, Texas, and a homeless veteran will live in it and have a home for the rest of his life. That is incredible. 
I want to talk about investing, but before we do, I have a few quick stories that I want to share as it pertains to investing that involve you. I must have been early 20s, I want to say 21, 22, and I was at your house in Copperfield. We were talking in your driveway, and you were telling me that you had bought your first house for about $100,000, and that you were getting ready to sell it for almost $200,000. I believe it was the first time that anyone had ever explained the concept of real estate equity to me, and it stuck with me. I went to your house one summer after coaching, helping you to coach the varsity summer team, and you gave me a, a check for helping out. And you had asked me what I was going to do with my life. And I told you that I was going to real estate school because I believe you asked me how much it costs. And I told you it was almost $1,000, I believe. I don't remember exactly how much it cost. But I said to you that I, I view it as an investment in myself. And you gave me that look that you're giving me now. I ran into you after college. We were in the neighborhood in Copperfield. And somehow we got to talking about what I was listening to in my Jeep Grand Cherokee. And I said it was a cassette series on negotiating. You can look this stuff up now. The name of the cassette tape series is The Secrets of Power Negotiating by Robert uh, Roger Dawson. I've seen it on Amazon. You asked me, what is the secret to negotiating? And I said, knowing what to say when. And I remember getting back in my car and thinking... You know, that might not be the secret. Like I should have, there are three other things that are probably more important. <laughs> so just to give you an idea of the influence, I remember almost every conversation that we've had. And I had this conversation with the head coach at, at Nickel State recently. He was telling me that he's cognizant of everything that he says to a kid because he realizes that they're going to remember everything. Do you, do you feel that as you go about your day? that everything you say is going to be remembered? No, and you're scaring me right now. Well, I may be a special case. I'll admit that. I document things, and so that helps you remember them. Um, I'm curious, what did you learn from your dad about investing? What did he teach you? Well, I knew early on, watching my father's struggles with his lack of financial stability that there had to be a better way to have some stabilization with your family and your equity. My father was a businessman. He worked here in Houston in the oil uh, industry, collapsed in 86, and I watched us lose our home to foreclosure. He lost. My mom had to sell her car, which she loved her car. My mother was a teacher. And so I saw everything just go. We lost everything. And then my parents, of course, through all that strife, end up getting divorced. So then I see the the dissolution of my of my I was an only child. I was at the I was a freshman at the University of Texas and there's no cell phones and my dad is gone and my mom is just a teacher and she says and I don't have a phone. I call collect. It's back when you could call collect. I said, "Mom, where's dad? Dad's not there anymore." She goes, "Brent, I need you to come home. I've got to move out of the house. We are uh, I'm getting the house foreclosed on. I was like, because she's a teacher. She doesn't have the money to keep up the house from a, which used to be a, a two income household. Come home. And, but I, I respect my dad enough to listen to him and my father when I went into education. Because I want, after I saw him struggle so much, I didn't want to go into business anymore. I, honestly, he called me a chicken shit when I didn't go into business because I shouldn't be scared of what happened to him. 
And and I really wanted to go into something at that point that was solid. I knew that in education, I, I love sports. Could I get involved in this? But Brad, he talked to me, if I'm going to go into education, to make sure that I'm investing early on. And it's not how much I invest. Just make sure that you're depositing into your tax-free annuity every single month. But it was just like $100 a month. It was a direct deposit. I didn't have to write a check. It immediately went out. I didn't even know I didn't earn that money. I, just, I didn't even know I spent that money and was going there. But it was 100 bucks a month, and then I knew I was comfortable. Let's make it $200 a month. Okay, I can afford a little more. And the pay raises would come in, the stipends would go up, and now it's $300 a month. And I really never really noticed that. But then years, you know, a couple of years pass, and I, I get introduced to a, a man named Jim Smith out of New York Life. He's a former coach, and we create a friendship at Sci Falls, and we talk financials. I'm a single guy at the time. He starts talking about investing, and I told him I don't have a whole bunch of expenses at the time. I'm a single guy. He says, well, let's just talk about where we go from there. And so that is now about a 25-year relationship I've had with Jim Smith at New York Life, and the investments now um, have taken off through the years. And it's not 100 to $200 a month anymore. It's thousands of dollars every month. But I don't know whether I, don't, I make that money. I, I don't need that money. I don't need to live off that money right now. I am uh, I'm planning for the future of my children, my wife, and myself as we retire one day. But I just know early on my dad told me, make it small that you can live and then see if you can up it as you go. I advocate for the same thing. If you've never saved money before, start with 10%. That's actually what The Richest Man in Babylon by George Clayson recommends. Very popular personal finance book. And then increase it 1% per year thereafter. You'd be amazed at how much wealth you can build. And it's, it's exciting to see compounding do most of the work once you've been saving for 15 to 20 years. Any other investing that you've done through the years? Well, so as, a, as an educator in the state of Texas, I know that my wife and I both have the biggest umbrella um, safety net coming up, which is a teacher retirement system. And I've been donating that now for 28 years. My wife has been in it for 24 years. We know that when we retire, when we're eligible, I'm, I'm now eligible to retire. I can retire right now and draw TRS the rest of my life. And the way TRS works is you take the years of service. So now I'm at 28 years times 2.3%. And that's the percentage that I will get of the average of my five highest salaries. So now I'm at pretty high salaries now as a, as a building principal. So now I'm at roughly, I can make 60, they, they'll give me 65% or so of my salary for the rest of my life if I want to retire right now. So every year I go, stay in the game, I get 2.3% more. And the two per th- you know, it keeps adding to it. And my wife will get my retirement after I pass for the rest of her life and vice versa. But we don't want to take a pay cut. I do not want to work until I get 100% of that. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to retire. I'm 52 right now. I'm in fairly good shape. I want to be able to enjoy the back end of my life and my grandchildren and my children and, and enjoy that. So what we have done through the last couple of years is not only do we have our TRS, which we have to donate to, is both my wife and I still have our 403B. So we have two 403Bs. We both have two. She and I both have a Roth IRA. And we both have our life insurance. I, I know there are people out there listening to this who are probably cringing at my investments 
because there's pro- I probably could have done better. I, I, I don't exactly know. I have one quarterback is Jim Smith. We have our meetings biannually. I see things growing. I know where it's at. He knows what I'm doing, saving for college. Um, our UTMA accounts, our 529 accounts. But all, and then we have a tax-free bond fund that I use also. Put several thousand into every month, which is stable, stable interest every single month. Look, I have was risky when I was younger. Now I'm a lot more conservative now because if I were to lose my nest egg, I'd be in a little bit of trouble. So now that I'm within the next, I'd like to retire maybe in the next five years. I know my wife wants to retire in five years. So we'll retire at similar times. It depends on how much fun I'm having at the job I'm doing. Right now, the job is not fun um, in the pandemic, but I know this is is a short stay. But we send uh, we send in the neighborhood of about six to eight thousand dollars a month to some form of investment, growing every single month. We have another investment. We talked earlier about um, real estate. Is even though we own our house, we have constantly shopped the interest rate. And we have refinanced our house several times. We bought a house that was probably out of our price range when we moved out here in the Humble area. And we did a 30-year mortgage right off the bat to see if we could afford it. And we did, and we were stable, we were good. And, but we knew a 15-year mortgage, we really chewed away at the principal. We, we like that. We like building equity. Maybe it's not the best thing to do. I know some people would like to take that money and invest it. We like chewing away at our principal because we know it's pretty stable return on our investment. But then my wife, after one year of doing a 15-year mortgage, said, hey, can we do a 10-year mortgage? Because remember, it was no-cost refi. Didn't even roll anything into it. They just wanted our business because we have good credit. We were both educators. And so I said, sure, I guess we can do that. So we did it for like four years. And Brad, I was so freaking broke. For those four years, we were the principal was being chunked away. It was great, but I looked at her. I said, "Angie, are we going to move?" She goes, "No." I said, "Well, I'd like some money in my pocket." <laughs> so we went back to a fifteen-year mortgage, and recently we refinanced to another fifteen-year mortgage at like two and a quarter percent. It's just ridiculous with the cost of money right now. But so one of our biggest investments now is our house. We have so much equity in our home, a home that. You know, we could sell and make a good chunk on it, but we're comfortable, but um, we're not prisoner to our payment. We can take vacations. Um, But the thing that I've always done is we don't escrow our taxes or our insurance. I take the money that we would pay at the end of the year, we'd pay monthly, and I make sure we send that to a tax-free bond fund earning about 45 to 5%. And we make the interest on it. And so in December of every year, Jim sends me a check for whatever our taxes are. And I just pay that then to get my tax break. But I make the interest on that $8,000 in taxes every year. Rather than the government. Very smart. Correct. Do you have any concern that you may overshoot the mark? And what I mean by that is working too many of your prime years? Yes. The main thing I worry about is when I see my friends passing away. Meaning, they retire. I mean, our superintendent in Umbalisti, Dr. Guy Sconzo, greatest man of all time, retired maybe five years ago, and he passed away this past summer. I'm like, wow, you only got to live retirement-free for maybe four, four and a half years. But maybe he loved his job so much. He had pleasure in his job. I enjoy my job also. But I am looking forward big time, and that's why I envy you so much in your your life's your life's journey is the freedom. We are really looking forward to traveling traveling to Mexico whenever we want to, going to Colorado whenever we want to. Yes, I am worried, but I'm in pretty good shape. 
I still lift weights every day. Why I run every day. Um, now I'm trying to box a little bit is so that I'm in shape to be able to enjoy those years. My health and my time are more valuable than my money right now. So I still have, I still have obligations. You know, Dominic is just my son. Our son is still a sophomore. I got college left there. Brianna will graduate. Our daughter will graduate in May. I still have college there. Fortunately, they both make good grades. We'll probably get some money. But let me get through some of these obligations. And then we'll, uh, but yeah, I'm concerned about that. I remember when I was going to college, some of the seniors in my class, in my high school class, I assumed their parents had saved quite a bit of money for them to go to school. Brittany Bruns, Jenny Cole course. They got nice new cars when I, I believe their parents saw that they were going to get some scholarship money, significant scholarship money, I presume. Jenny finished second in our class. Mm-hmm. Brittany went on to play basketball at a perennial powerhouse, yeah. Baylor. What will you do should they get significant scholarship money? Will you somehow reward them or what happens to that money? No, I don't see me rewarding them. <laughs> I don't see that happening at all. Um, our kids have been taken care of pretty well. Our kids have worked for everything they get. They get good. They make good grades. Our daughter has her own car. We bought her a used car when she turned sixteen. Dominic will get a car one day. But if they were to be blessed to get scholarship money, listen. We're, we're, the way college works now is we're just going to pay for college out of our pocket. We're pretty debt free right now. We have a house payment. But it's not really crazy house payment. I think I pay a thousand dollars a month for our house payment. It's not crazy. The amount of money we make, what we invest, we can pay for their college out of every paycheck. A quarterly pay, we can, we can do that for both both of our kids because of the financial decisions we made in the past. We have eliminated a lot of debt. We try to pay as much cash as we can for things. I have very little credit card, but as our kids get anything that they earn anything with scholarships, um, you know, this is one piece of financial advice my dad did for for my kids that I really didn't think about much then. I kind of knew about it, but my kids didn't understand it all. My dad uh, lives in Georgetown, Texas. And he has never given either one of my children, who are now 15 and 17, that he's never given them a Christmas or a birthday gift. Never. They may have gotten a book or a silver coin, which is worth you know nothing, not a real silver coin. He's never given them a gift. They do never remember Paul giving them a gift under the tree or anything like that. They've never seen anything like that. And they never questioned it because Grandma gave them something. Nana and Grammy and Dad and Mom gave them stuff. But what my dad did, as soon as they got their Social Security card when they were born, they, he opened them both a 529 account. And he put the equivalent of what a gift would be in that 529 account since they were born. If it was 100 bucks, 200 bucks, if it was 250 he would give it to them at Christmas. He would give it to them at birthdays. He would give them to them at Valentine's Day, Easter, Thanksgiving. He would constantly put deposits into that 529 plan rather than giving them that one gift that they would, I don't know, grow out of. So the first part of my kid's college education is my dad's 529 plan he put on my children. So Brianna, who's about to graduate, I want to say that is now about $35,000 now. And Dominic's is a neighborhood of about 25000 right now. So we will pay for the first part of their education out of those non-gift gifts that my dad actually gave them, started them years ago with the 529 plan. It's tricky. I have friends in their 20s who received economic assistance from their parents, 
And I feel like it did them more harm than good. A lot of them will have a three-story townhome purchased for them, for example. And I, I just think, man, I don't know about that. It just seems like it's too much. But then I think, well, maybe their parents saved for them for years and years, and they have to do something with that money. Maybe it'd be better to put it into something where they can't touch it until they're 26 or something. I, I don't know exactly. But while it seems unfair... It also, I know, it probably does them more harm than good when they're handed so much money at one time. I have a friend, Dr. M. Sice in New Orleans, who just gave me a check for my daughter. And in the memo section of the check, it says 529. And I sent him a text how grateful I was because he's the first buddy of mine to, like me, think about her future. So I thought that was pretty special. Do you ever think about get, getting back into coaching in retirement? Sometimes, but if I were to go back into coaching, I don't think it's going to be baseball. Mm. Baseball's pretty, uh, it's a pretty big grind. Um, I don't know if you knew, but growing up, I was a pretty good golfer. Sometimes think about coaching a little bit of golf. Um, I had a good time coaching with you, with the guys at Sci Falls. Um, and then when Dominic was growing up playing baseball, my son, I coached his team with through dad pitch and select ball when he was five through his 14. That was good. That that kind of uh, fed the beast of me coaching. I'm I'm done with that now. But I really enjoy coaching him in tennis now. He's a really good tennis player. The hand-eye coordination is very similar in baseball. I asked him, I asked him, why why don't you want to play baseball anymore, Dad? He goes, Well, Dad, I got might get two or three at bats a game, but in tennis I hit the ball like crazy. I really enjoy it. And you know what? I always played tennis growing up. So if I did, you know, they have things called retire, rehire. So I could retire. Look, when I retire, I'm not going to sit around and piddle around. There's going to be things to do. I got, I got too much going on, like, like kind of like you do. You know, what, what is it I'm interested in? That's the main thing I'm looking forward to is when I retire, I can do whatever I want. That's what Angie says all the time, my wife. I can do whatever the heck I want. And so maybe it's coaching tennis, maybe it's golf, or maybe it's whatever the hell I want to do. Are you ready to do some fun questions? I'll do my best. Social media, net positive or net negative for society? Well... We are speaking on the day that President Trump had his Twitter taken away because of what he said, and that was some negative stuff going on there. I will say that I helped, we helped build the reputation of Summer Creek High School through positive social media, but on a daily basis at a high school, I deal with a lot of negative posts by kids. Kids talk a lot of shit through their thumbs on this stuff. So I want to say I want to say net positive, but there is so much net net negative negativity. But I will say, I get a kick out of watching TikTok. Man, these people these people crack me up. Uh, I don't do much TikTok. I've done like two videos, but I'm gonna go net negative because I watch these kids do some dumb ass shit on social media. But I, I do use it, so I don't want to seem like a hypocrite. Destroying their lives, basically. Big time, big time. And, and the, if I have a fight in my school, which doesn't happen very often, it always resolve, revolves around girls or boys talking trash about each other on social media. And then when I try to decipher through the posts that I see, I can't even read it because it's not legible English. It's some slang, but they throw a lot of crud at each other through social media, and I can't even read it, defend it. And you see a lot of kids posting pictures they should not be putting on there do you find it's harder to communicate with kids nowadays than it was when i was in school i, I wouldn't say so uh, I, I kids can talk kids can speak kids 
we have really good conversations with lots of kids. Kids are mature enough, especially at this high school. We have good conversations and things like that. Um, I see where they're at. There's an evolution. There's a maturity uh, maturity aspect. I'm getting older, and I get uh, less patient with some of their behavior. But I understand that is how freshmen act. I look forward to you being a senior one day and have a conversation. I have this with my son, who's 15 years old. You know, our daughter is 17, but she acts like she's 40, 45 years old because she's so mature. But then I have a 15-year-old that's very intelligent, but he acts like a 15-year-old boy. And I say to him every once in a while, I can't wait to meet, meet you when you're 25 years old because you're driving me crazy right now. <laughs> Do you think Jeffrey Tubin of CNN should have been fired for accidentally exposing himself on a Zoom call? An accident. I really can't speak on the situation because I don't know the situation. I am concerned about accidental, if it was truly accidental, a mistake happens on terminating somebody for that situation. So how about I can't really express my opinion because I don't know much about it. What is the best donut you've ever had? So I love the plain glazed at Shipley's Donuts. Told my daughter the other day they are awesome. And she said, Dad, I really don't like donuts. I said, then you haven't had a Shipley's plain glazed. She goes, Dad, but I really like the Boston cream pie at Dunkin' Donuts. I said, Brianna, the only reason you like the Dunkin' Donut Boston Cream Pie is because we always got them before we boarded the Disney Cruise on spring break. So you put those two together. But the Boston Cream Pie is pretty good. Shipley's is a lot better. I'm with you on the plain glaze. Shipley's wouldn't be my number one, but everywhere I go, it's got to be a plain glaze. They're doing way too much with the voodoo donuts and dressing these things up. Just give me a plain glaze donut. What are you? Are you Krispy Kreme or what are you? Well, we've been going to a place called District on Magazine Street in New Orleans. We really like that. And then there's one on the other side of the river, which is the side of the river we live on, which is Algiers. They have a place called Joe's, which is a little cafe and... They're plain glaze. Excellent. So I'm going to put those one and two right now. Excellent. What is one piece of travel equipment that you would recommend if someone only had $100 to spend? What do you mean by travel equipment? Something that you would take on the plane, either in your carry-on or maybe even in your luggage, but something that if you were going to Europe or Mexico for a week— something that you would spend money on. This AirPods are probably $150. That could be considered travel equipment, I guess. You know, I'm a rookie when it comes to podcasting, to be quite honest, Brad. You've kind of got me on to podcasts. I was doing some Joe Rogan earlier when I do my runs and my walks and things like that. Um, but it eats up too much memory on my phone. I guess I need to upgrade my phone a little bit. Well, you don't have to download an episode, I don't think. If You can you can just stream it. That might help. i got to figure that one out. You know, um, the downloading of some good uh, Netflix on your uh, on your phone that way you can travel pay attention but i really like watching some youtube videos prior to getting my destination so i have an idea of what i'm about to expect and the culture that i'm about to travel to because i want to know my behavior when i show up in isla mujeres which we'd like to travel to very soon have you ever been to isla mujeres before probably the most beautiful beach of any i've been to in the entire world playa norte that's north beach yes so that is the plan is I would make sure I have 
of I've learned and listened to with my hundred dollars uh, iPod, uh, my uh, AirPods or Pro Beats, so I know what I'm going to when I go to Islam Harris. Did you know that my wife and I went to Islam Harris? We took off on Wednesday of spring break last year. As we're loading the plane, just she and I are going for three days. Is as we're loading the plane, walking on the gangplank, whatever they call that at, at uh, uh, Intercontinental Airport or Bush Airport, they say to us, can you believe they just shut down the rodeo here in Houston? We're like, what do you mean? Yeah, the pandemic. We're like, really? What are you talking about? Is it really that bad? We load the plane. We fly out. We go to Mexico. We take the ferry across to Isla. We stay there for about three days. During the whole time, I'm getting uh, all kinds of phone, text messages, stuff like they don't know if you're coming back or not. So at that point, I'm like, well, I guess if I'm going to get quarantined somewhere, I'm going to stay right here in Isla Mujeres. But we did make it back. But So the uh, quarantine started at the exact time while we were in uh, Isla Mujeres, and we never returned to school for the rest of the school year. Everything had to be online. That was difficult also, trying to figure that out. Wow. Mexico is one of few places that you can visit or that you could have visited over the past, let's say, 10 months. And so we've been back and forth to Playa del Carmen, Isla Mujeres, Cancun, quite a bit, Cozumel. All of those places are in that vicinity. And of all the beaches, I mean, you consider South Africa, Thailand, Croatia, of anywhere in the world, truly, I believe Isla Mujeres, Isla Mujeres has the best beaches in in the world i mean they're that good beautiful great if someone offered you a hundred thousand dollars worth of one of these stocks which would you take spotify tesla or airbnb was talking with my wife last night because she we need to get a new car we're going to give dominic her car and get her a new car because he's when he's 16, his insurance is going to be through the roof. We started talking Tesla a little bit yesterday. Everybody who drives a Tesla loves it. Is that true? Yes. So I saw one down the street from us yesterday, and it had a door like a, a DeLorean door. And it had kind of like a matte finish on it. I was like, that's a good-looking car. My wa- my darlis is a Spotify, but I don't know a lot of other people that do. I'm sure they do. I don't mean to disrespect Spotify. And what was the third Airbnb? Because mm-hmm. we're a VRBO guy, which is a, which is kind of very similar. I'm gonna go with Tesla with the climate change and the. I'm gonna go with Tesla and keep my fingers crossed. If the University of Texas could sign Nick Saban to a three-year deal or Bill Belichick to a six-year deal, which would you choose? I'm going with Nick Saban only because his expertise has been at the college game and the University of Texas is obviously a college football program. No disrespect to what Coach Belichick has done. I know he'd be a great football coach, but there's more to coaching football at the college level than X's and O's. There's a lot of recruiting that goes into it, and Saban knows exactly the pockets where to recruit where Belichick's been out of it too long. Even if you gave Belichick six years, huh? I just think uh, at their ages right now, even though they're neither one of them are spring chickens, that's really good. And I just said three years, six years, made me think about it. But no, I can't go. Both are both the two greatest. I'm going with, I'm going to stick with, final answer, Nick Saban. Your opinion of the Sarkeesian hire at UT? It's a lot of money to pay people that aren't coaching at the University of Texas anymore. So, 
they have to pay, I want to say roughly $39 million to Herman and his former staff of guaranteed contracts. I want to say Herman was guaranteed $15 million and $24 million to his staff that are now gone. So $39 million not to coach here, and now you have to pay Coach Sark's staff coming in. You know what, Brad? It's not my money. Uh, doesn't doesn't cost me anything. I'm looking forward to uh, what he can do to the offense, but I still can't figure out. Although they went seven and three, and two of their losses were fumbles at the one yard line, I still can't figure out why Oklahoma, and I'm a Texas fan, Oklahoma is so superior in college football than Texas because they recruit the same dudes. So I'm going to say. Great hire. Go get him, Coach Sark. Okay, these are fun questions, but they require a little bit deeper thinking. Do you think not wanting something is just as good as having it? I've heard this question before, (laughs) and I've actually thought about it. I had to play it back and think about it over and over again. I've heard both sides of the story. Not wanting something or not having it. I think if I think it's better to not have it, but I continue to work for it and maybe get it one day in my lifetime. But not having it is a better thing, and maybe it's something that will drive me to have it one day. If you could organize a dinner party of six guests and have either everyone you've hurt or everyone who has ever hurt you, which would you choose? I would like to talk to every person that I have hurt and give them the opportunity to tell me everything I've done wrong because I would like to apologize for whatever I have done to them. I have learned a lot. I'm not a perfect person. I have some regrets in my lifetime, which scared me earlier when you told me of the things you remember that I said because I have had, as everyone else's, our bad moments. I would like to have the opportunity to be able to mend the... um, harsh things that maybe I've said or I've done or have ignored or years ago. I know I've not been a perfect person, so I'd rather just, I'd like to take it like a man and uh, apologize and move forward whether they accept my apology or not. What is the likelihood or percentage chance of being true, do you think, that coronavirus was deliberate? I can't understand why you would want to deliberately do this to someone. You're going to really make me think there. I got. I, I really want to hope that humans would not want to do this to one another and cause the chaos that we have now seen for the last year and the destruction, the death, the mayhem. I really hope it wasn't done on purpose and where it actually started. That's That's deep. If China were at war with us, do you think they would tell us? If they were at war with us, tell us that they did it? That they were at war with us. Or, yeah, tell us that they did it. Would it cause a war like like Pearl Harbor caused the war against Japan? We knew they did that to us in Pearl Harbor. So that caused World War II, correct? Correct. If they came out and said, we sent the coronavirus to America on purpose, would that cause World War III? Well, my question is, if they were at war with us now, 
would they tell us or would they have told us that they were going to start a war with us? I don't know if they're going to tell us anything at all right now. Do you have a favorite book? I would say that the book that has shaped my professional career for 18 years now, I read uh, called Raving Fans by Ken Blanchard. It is a um, customer service book. It has nothing to do with education, but I read it when I was in doctor's appointments for uh, the birth of our daughter, Brianna. Do you know the book? No, but I'm familiar with the doctor's appointments. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how you're sitting there. And so it's not a long read book, and I'll have to send you a copy of it. But the whole idea is uh, raving fans is uh, – you want to create satisfied customers. Even though I am a high school principal, I am in the customer service business. And Brad, even though I don't make money or any profit off of my students or my my parents or my staff, I am trying to create an atmosphere in which people show up at Summer Creek High School. Before when I read the book, I was a baseball coach at Cy Falls, then assistant principal at Cy Falls, then at Wood Creek as a principal, then here is I want people to leave my presence as a raving fan, as just a satisfied customer. The whole idea behind the book of raving fans is not to create just satisfied customers, but raving fans. Was that food good enough tonight when you ate? If they just say, okay, that's not good enough. You want them to say, man, that was the best restaurant. You need to go get that etouffee again when you go to Papa's Seafood. So raving fans means I'm going to ask my customers, what do you want out of this program, out of this school? And there's some things I'm going to be able to do, but there's some things I can't do. I am not Walmart. I don't have tires over here. I don't have pharmacy over here and carpet cleaners over here. But whatever I tell you I'm going to do, I do it day in, day out. And you're going to leave there and go, you know what? Mr. McDonald gave me not the best answer. He suspended my son, but you know what? He treated me fairly, respectfully, listened to me, but he's got a job to do. So Raving Fans is the book that kind of transcend my baseball program program and now my administration so we try to create raving fans at the high school that i work now i love that you've made a raving fan of me and to have someone that i have always looked up to and respect always pulling for me has been huge for me and so thank you for all of the influence and impact that you've had on my life and i appreciate you sitting down with me can you believe we just did two hours that's pretty quick two hours right there. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate you. Friends, thank you for tuning in. Oh, wait, I should ask, how can people connect with you online? Well, the, I really and truly, I do have a Facebook. I do have a Twitter account on BrentMac68 is my Twitter handle. I have a Facebook account. And then if uh, my email address is brent.mcdonald at umbleisd.net. Perfect. Friends, thank you for tuning in. I realize you could be listening to anything in the world right now, but you chose to spend your time with us, and I'm grateful for that. If you enjoyed this episode with Mr. Brent McDonald, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 